the chronological gulf between the old rigveda and the new rigveda i have analyzed the huge mass of names and those names you know cover almost every hymn in book 1 8 9 and 10 and almost asada uh, in 8 9 and 10 and a huge percentage of the hymns in book 1 and 5 and they are found only in the new books they are missing in the old rigveda so even if there are layers within each book those layers are not different from each other especially in book 5 for example you find uh, the geographical names or the names of particular people they are spread out throughout the book 5 including in the older hymns as well as the redacted hymns and that is the only main distinction within the family books there are old hymns and there are redacted hymns which were you know modified and changed all the time so they exhibit a later linguistic uh, status state but in spite of that all the hymns in book 5 for come in the late stage see there are uh, 10 families of uh, rishis in the rigveda there are vishamitra vasishtas angirasas there are three branches bharadwajas dirghatamasis and uh, uh, vamadevas so no not vamadevas i mean gautamas now then there are bhrugus then there are kashyapas there are 10 um, uh, families in all or rather nine priestly families and one family which is actually the kings from the bharatapuru dynasty who became rishis and composed hymns today we are going to speak about the dasharatne battle which is one of a series of bharatapuru battles which are recorded in the rigveda now you know why is the rigveda important more important than any other source for deciding ancient indo aryan indo iranian and indo european history that is because it is the oldest recorded text in the whole world its earliest part go back beyond 3000 bc and its uh, latest parts range from 2000 to 1500 bc it has 1028 hymns and 10552 verses so it is a huge reservoir of ancient data but what is the value of this data because it is so ancient in some ways that is also hamper the discussion of the uh, examination of the data so to what extent can it help us to reconstruct or understand the details of vedic history now this question is important because you know many people often raise two kinds of questions on uh, whatever i have written first is they pick out some names or some event recorded in the rigveda and they ask me what is the context of it and try to make, uh, ask me how it can be related to what i have written the second thing is that they try to pick up uh, things from the puranas and somehow connected to the rigvedic history because uh, many people are you know obsessed with showing that uh, the puranas give us the full history of ancient india so uh, for that reason i have to explain what is the value of the rigvedic data why is it important as compared to other sources of data now uh, to give an example uh, today as i said we uh, have written that we have film songs bhajan labhang and kriti which gives the as uh, the names of people rescued or helped by the gods for example to give just one example in the film nastik there is a song kaun chhuega uski parchhai re jisko bachane wala sai and in that there is a whole list of uh, names given of people who have been helped by vishnu or krishna for example dhruva pralad and also an elephant whose leg is caught in the uh, river it is caught in the grip of a crocodile and it appeals to vishnu for help and vishnu comes down and rescues the elephant from the crocodile now all of you must be aware of so many simshan bhajan abhangan kriti which deal with uh, all these people who are appealed to the gods to 
Vishnu, Krishna, Ram, or maybe even to Shiva, Devi, or to Vithala, for example, in Maharashtra. And uh, the gods come to their help. Now, what is the? Uh, we immediately recognize the context behind these names. For example, they just mention Dhruva or Pralat, and we they don't have to give the context also. We immediately know what they are. Sometimes they give clues. You saved Pralat from the fire, so that it did not burn him. Or uh, then, or you saved the uh, Dhopadi from being uh, you know humiliated by being disrupted in public. So even if those contexts are not given, still we know the context because. we know the stories behind these names because the stories are much older they are recorded in the puranas epics and other traditional texts and we are already aware of them and for someone who is not aware of the particular story can always go and check it up in the old text but in the case of the rigveda this is not possible because the rigveda is the oldest text there are no older records giving the details and context of the names given in the text unless the rigveda itself gives them So we are left clueless. This is a problem because when the Rigveda gives us names of people who are helped by the gods, we just know that that they have been helped by the gods. And if some context is mentioned in uh, a few words, we understand that. But we don't know the full story behind it because no older records survive giving us the details of these stories. Now, the, in the Rigvedic times, the composers knew the full context and the story, and the listeners who heard the uh, hymns being recited. they also knew the full context and story so they did not require a full details to be told to them for example now when we hear the name of dropadi being said or pralada being said or dhruva being said and we know the story so just the name alone brings the whole story in front of our eyes so that was the case in the rigvedic times unfortunately we do not know all the story because the rigveda is the oldest text so we are often left clueless as to what was Incidents are or who those people are. We just know what the Rigveda tells us. Now the Rigveda consists of two types of references. Now, like the all these modern bhajans and all, there are people who appeal to the gods for help when they are distressed, and the gods come to their help. It's Vishnu, Ram, Vishnu, whatever. But in the Rigveda, it is the Ashwin who always come to the help of those who are in distress. So it is in the Ashwin hymns that you find long list of people who are helped in some way or other by the Ashwin. For example, so many people, the Bhujiu, who is stranded somewhere in the middle of the ocean, the Ashwin go and rescue him. Many people are stranded in pits, or there is Vadrimati, the wife of an important person. The Ashwin bless them so that her husband is able to give her a child. Then there are people who can't find husband or wife, and the Ashwin tells them to find husband and wife. There is Vishpala who loses her leg. The Ashwin gave her a metal leg instead, so that she can even run by using that leg. so there are all kind of a long list of such things this is one kind of uh, uh, one kind of data that we get about the people who are helped by the ashwin now this does not help us in any reconstruction of history it helps us to know the lore of the vedic times but even that we know only as far as the rigveda tells us if it mentions a name and gives just two three words of explanation we know only that much we don't know the details to now the same thing happens There are other types of references in the Rigveda. Our names of enemies destroyed by Indra for the sake of certain heroes or protagonists of the Rigveda. Now this is a totally different category. Here there is no help in or rescue. It is Indra battles for them and kills the enemies. That is when the enemies are killed and destroyed by the heroes, it is attributed to Indra. 
Now again, the same problem is there, except for the names and sometimes single clues. We do not have any details to re reconstruct any history from these references. Most of these names and events have been totally forgotten by the time the Puranas and even the later Vedic texts were composed. And a few names appear which are contain later fabricated stories having no actual connection with the possible event of Rigvedic times. Now, some people insist, you know, that uh, no, no, that if it is given in the Purana, it must be true. So, I will give one example. Now, in the uh, Indra destroys enemy, but there are two types of enemies here. One is Indra is the thunder god who brings rain and he fights against demons of the atmosphere who try to prevent the rainfall. And the main demon in the Rigveda is Vritra. Now, Vritra means it is derived from the root Vrit, which means to encircle. So, Vritra is a demon who encircles the rain cloud like a uh, like a serpent. In fact, he is supposed to be in the form of a serpent, a great serpent. And he prevents the rainfall. So, Indra attacks him with his thunderbolt, the Vajra, and kills him. There is a big fight in the sky, and he finally destroys Vritra each time. There is not only one Vritra. And uh, then the rain comes. So this is the origin of the myth. It is a nature myth. It is not. It does not have anything to do with any actual battles on the earth in human history. But now what has happened is this same story has been transported to other Indo-European mythologies, and it has lost the natural element. It has become humanized. Thus, in Greek mythology, the thunder god of Greek mythology is Zeus, and he kills the great serpent Typhoeus. That is his main deed. In Teutonic or Germanic mythology, Thor is the thunder god and he destroys the great serpent of Midgard. Now, none of them retain memories of the nature origin of this myth. Then in Hittite mythology, there is a weather god. His name is not given, but he is uh, being uh, harassed by a great serpent. So he tells another god to go and destroy that serpent. And that other god, whose name is Inara. So clearly it is Indra. He goes and destroys that uh, uh, great serpent. So now here you have the same thing. They have forgotten that Indra himself is the uh, thunder god. And they remember that it's something to do with the weather. So it has retained some elements. Then finally we have the Iranian mythology, where Vritra, Indra has been demonized. Indra is a demon in the Avesta. But Indra's epithet, Vritrahan or Vritragna, destroyer of, destroyer of Vritra, which later comes to mean also destroyer of enemy. That has become, uh, divide, that name has become deified into the name of a deity, Vritragna. Vritragna becomes Vritragna, and he is the god of victory. And one of the main things he does is he removes obstacles to the pain. So there also that myth has continued. So now the thing is that in the Vedic text itself, this nature myth gets forgotten in later Vedic texts. And then there is a story that there is a god called, there, there is a Vedic god called Kvashtra. Now his son Vishwarupa is killed by Indra. Because of that, he gets, uh, he decides to create a son, create a powerful person who will kill Indra. So he creates this Vritra and then Vritra and Indra battle it out and Indra kills Vritra. That is the story. 
But when you go further in the Mahabharata, there is one new element. This Vritra has now become a Brahmin. Now you know in many stories in the Ramayana and Mahabharata, like for example the Shambhuka story or the story of the dog in the Valmiki Ramayana. You know, the writers who are Brahmins have introduced certain elements showing special privileges for the Brahmins. So now in this particular story in the Mahabharata, because Indra kills a Brahmin, so he incurs a sin and he gets some uh, uh, disease, skin disease or something, so that uh, he like a leper, for example, and he goes into hiding. When he goes into hiding, the gods are desperate because they require someone to sit on the throne, the throne of the uh, king of the devas. So they can't find Indra anywhere. So then they decide to set up a human being, a man called Nahusha. Now again, we have here Nahusha is a name mentioned in the Rigveda, but there is no context with this story. You know, they, in the Purana, they just pick up names from the many times. They pick up names from the Rigveda and then they new fabricated stories are about them. So in this story, Nahusha is a very virtuous, powerful and very uh, intelligent king. So they decide he will be perfect to take the place of Indra. But when he becomes the king, he becomes arrogant. And he starts, uh, as time passes, he becomes more and more arrogant. And he wants all the rishis to take him on a palanquin. And then when they are not going fast enough, he kicks one of the rishis. So the rishi immediately curses him and he turns him into a snake. So then finally he out Indra again, he expires his sin in some way and he becomes the king of the Godavari. Now this story has absolutely no connection with the Vritra of the Rigveda. So if we try to backdate this story onto the Rigveda, it would make no sense. In spite of the fact that the Rigveda uses details about the nature myth, still that myth has become so completely changed by the time of the later books. So when the Rigveda uses certain names and it does not give us details, then we can imagine how much more that story will become distorted or how much more stories will be fabricated concerning those names. Now, except for these names and often single clues, we do not have any details to reconstruct any history from these references. Most of these names and events have been forgotten by the time of the Purana and a few appear in fabricated stories. So, although the Rigveda contains plenty of information on battles and uh, heroes and uh, people who are destroyed by Indra. It does not help us to reconstruct Vedic history for the simple reason that we have no context and no stories beyond those few words which are mentioned in the Rigveda. There are no older texts to give us the full story and the later texts have already distorted and changed the story. So by and large, that is why the Rigveda, in spite of having so much data, it is not very uh, easy to reconstruct history from it, with one exception. They are the more detailedly recorded Bharata Puru battles. They are the ones which are important and they are the ones I am dealing with in this talk. Now, everyone knows the most famous historical story in ancient pre-Buddhist India, the Mahabharata War. It was fought between two clans of the Kuru Bharatas, who were a branch of the Kurus. Now, and all the kingdoms of North India are supposed to have participated in this right from Bihar and Bengal to Afghanistan and Maharashtra. So, this and this, the events of the Mahabharata and also the Ramayana are so well known that people know all about these, the characters in these stories, all the stories associated with them. And you find these stories depicted even in the temples of Southeast Asia more than a thousand years ago. The Hindu temple and even the Buddhist temples of Southeast Asia and other places where Buddhism also spread. So, 
these are very well known to the indians but very few know much more about the ancient earlier battles fought by the purus in the vedic times because even the later vedic and puranic texts are blank about these events why are they blank because out of hundreds of battles mentioned in the rigveda there is no particular reason to think that these battles were more important so they did not keep the memories of the details of these other battles however these three bharata purus battles are important because they are given in detail in the rigveda and these battles are important events from the point of view of modern history because it tells us about indo european and particularly indo iranian history and the history of world civilization in india now the bharata purus who lived mainly in haryana remember they were sub tribe of the purus the bharata purus Wars of the Rigveda span many generation of generations of kings of a clan descended from ancestral Bharata and contain which included many important kings like Devavas, Rinjaya, Devotas, Sudas, Sahadeva, and Somaka. Many generations separated Sudas from the earlier and later kings. You know, some people think Sudas is the son of uh, Devodasa and he is the father of Sahadeva. That is not so. Rinjaya uh, is father. Rinjaya is the father of Devodasa. And Sahadeva is the father of Somaka. Beyond that, all these things have many generations separating them. Now, the Rigveda in its old books, that is, books six, three, seven, four, and two, was a book of the Bharata Purus. And by the time of the new books, five, one, eight, nine, ten, it was a book of the Purus in general. And the kings of this dynasty were the heroes and protagonists kings of the old books, that is, six, three, seven, four, two. So every single reference to the word Bharata is found only in the old books. Except for one reference in Book One, which is by the Kutsas, and the Kutsas are important because they continue that tradition of the Purubharata War, Bharata Puru Wars, as I will be showing. Now, now the the Rigveda describes many battles, but the references to them are so vague, ambiguous, and simple that we cannot derive any historical data from them. But the battles fought in the Bharata Bharata at the time of Shrinjaya, Sudha, and Sahadev Somaka. And apart, because they form a very important continuum of events, which led to the emigration of the last four Iranian branches of Indo-European. You know, Indo-European languages have twelve branches. One of them is Indo-Aryan, and four others are the four others according to linguists. After all the other branches had departed from the homeland, five branches were remaining in the homeland in the end. They were Indo-Aryan, Iranian, Armenian, Greek, and Albanian. Now it is. Surprising that in these battles you find these very five groups who are named in the battles of the Bharata Purus. The Bharata Purus, of course, themselves are the Indo-Aryans. They represent the Indo-Aryan branch, and the Iranians, Armenians, Greeks, and Albanians, that is their linguistic ancestors, are represented by the Anus. I don't know if you know that the Puranas have classified them as five tribes: the Druhus, Anus, Purus. And the Yadus and Turusus to the south. So the Anus were the ancestors of the Iranian, Armenian, Greek, and Albanian tribes, and the Purus were the ancestors of Indo-Aryans. Now, why is this so important from the point of view of world history? Because 46% of the world speaks Indo-European languages: English, Spanish, Portuguese, Russian, Hindustani, Persian, etc. As the first language alone. Then, of course, another 25-30% at least. Speak it as a second language. Those whose mother tongues may not be Indo-European, they also know English, 
Hindustani, Persian, or some other languages, the Persian, Spanish. So, the records of these batches provide us with the only recorded evidence in the world of the Indo European homeland and migration. Otherwise, you know, there is such speculation that they went from South Russia and then they make up all stories about how they went out and where they went out. They try to find evidence for these things. But they think that it is not recorded anywhere. However, this last stage of the uh, migration of the Indo Europeans from their homeland is recorded in the Rigveda. The Bharatapuru battles, there were three historical battles. First was the Battle of Hariupiya in Haryana at the time of Srinjaya. The second was the Battle of Ten Kings in the Punjab, the most important of the numerous battles of Siddhar. And the third is the Varshagera battle in Afghanistan at the time of Shahadeva and Somaka. Now here you see the progressive westward shifting from Haryana to the Punjab, from Punjab to Afghanistan. Where the Purus, Bharata Purus are fighting the Anus, that is the proto-Iranians and others. And after each battle, the proto uh, Anus or proto-Iranians and others have shifted further and further westward. Till they are in Afghanistan at the time of the third battle. And that is where the Avesta was composed. The Iranian, oldest Iranian text. Now these battles are important because they show the westward shift and it also shows that the Anus were originally in Haryana. And then finally they went to uh, as far as Afghanistan. And the second important thing is that in the first battle, the Anus were allies of the Bharatapurus. It is only in the second, when they were in Haryana. But as time by the time of Sudas, they were uh, in the enemy range. And the next two battles have them as the main enemy. Now to understand Vedic history, we must first get out of the false belief that the Rigveda, the oldest Vedic text, is the ancestral text of hello, yeah, ancestral text of all the people of India. It is not. It is a text only of the Purus of Haryana as they later spread out slightly to, into Punjab and Western uh, uh, UP. Now, in the period of the old books, 6, 3, 7, 4 and 2, it was a text of the Bharata Puru, sub-tribe of the Purus. But later it became a more general Puru book. Now, the Purus were just one of the many Indo-European tribal conglomerates of North India. They were several 11 branches which migrated out of India. They were to the west of the Purus. And to the east and south of the Purus were the other branches, the Yadus, Turvasus, and Ikshwakus, who spoke other Indo-European dialects, which were not derived from Rigvedic, but which were also Indo-European dialects. Later in time, as Vedic culture spread, they were completely influenced by the Vedic language, and then they all merged together. But to begin with, they were not part of the Vedic stream. Now, the, uh, as I said, I, I just explained it, I think the Yadus and Turvasus and uh, um, and uh, to the south, they were to the south of the Purus. They were in southwestern UP and areas south that is extending perhaps up to Gujarat, Madhya Pradesh, and Maharashtra. The Anus were to the north and west of the Purus in the Punjab and areas further north, and the Druhus in northeastern Punjab and further areas. Originally, the Druhus were in Punjab, but in earlier pre-Rigvedic times, they were driven out further west into northwestern most Punjab and Afghanistan. And later, of course, after the Dasharadni war, the Anus spread into those areas and the Duhus were further driven out into Central Asia and beyond. Now, the Ikshwakus to the east of the Purus are another group. Now, they are not part of the five tribes, which are considered Luna tribes. They are part of the Sola tribes to the uh, east. So, further east and south were the Austrian and Dravidian language speaking people. 
so all these different people were there of which the vedic people were only the purus and originally the, the bharata purus now the now we uh, we will deal with those battles the first battle is the haryupiya battle this is the first of the historical bharata puru battles and it took place in haryana at the time of srinjaya the father of divodasa it is described in book 6 in him 6.27 this battle took place on the banks of the yavyavati and haryupiya two sister tributaries of the saraswati in this the anus and the purus bharata purus were allied the anus were led by abhavardhan chayamana who belonged to the parthava or parthian sub tribe of anus and the uh, srinjaya who was the king of the bharata purus so they were allied in this battle and they jointly defeated the turvasus and yadus who were the enemies in this particular battle this battle is important it would not have been important otherwise it is important only because it shows that in the earliest period the bharata purus and the anus were allied in contrast with the situation in later times also it explains early references to haryana that is lake manusha which is in haryana it is mentioned in the avesta that is the only importance of the haryupiya battle next one also it tells us that uh, uh, chayamana uh, abhavardhan chayamana was a parthava which is important when we are analyzing the dasharatna battle now the battles of sudas we talk only about the dasharatna battle but actually there are sudas fought many battles both to the east and the west and these battles are described in two books of the rigveda book 3 and book 7 now book 3 is the earlier book because it was at that time vishwamitra was the priest of sudas and in book 7 it was vashishta who was the priest of sudas he was replaced by uh, vishwamitra was replaced by vashishta now many people from this and I, by many people i mean most scholars have you know converted this into a battle between vishwamitra and vashishta the dasharatna but it is not so because once vishwamitra ceased to be the priest of sudas he faded from this particular scene is not an enemy of sudas in any way now in book 3 the book of vishwamitra two big events are discussed first 3.33 shows the bharata purus and the sudas expanding westwards crossing the vipash and sutudri river now there is no battle described here they just uh, have to overcome the turbulence of the rivers which they are crossing and vishwamitra quietens the waters of the rivers so that they are able to pass so that is the greatness of vishwamitra in this case it is not a battle and this took place first and perhaps by that time sudas had not even thought of conquering everywhere because the hymn tells us that the reason why sudas crossed these two rivers and went westward is in quest of soma soma which was grown in northwestern most uh, parts of uh, present day pakistan and in afghanistan and central asia so soma was known to the people of the to the rigvedic people of the old books but it was a very rare thing like you know spice indian spices were known to europeans and they were taken there from here so when there was a shortage of the spices the europeans had to try and find a route to india to get uh, to acquire these spices and to take a possession of the spice fields and all that so in the same way sudas for uh, sudas and the bharata purus soma was a very rare ingredient from the northwest so in this sudas actually tried to cross the river so that he could move further into the lands of soma and acquire soma now the second hymn 353 describes the great yatna undertaken by the vishwamitra for sudas after which a horse is released 
so that Sudhas can conquer east, west, and north and gain riches. That is what the hymn tells us. Now remember, there are no specific battles and victories are mentioned here. Vishwamitra had helped them cross the rivers and he had helped them perform the yajna. But apparently, after this, he failed to achieve any concrete results, which must have made Sudhas replace him with Vasishtha as his priest. So there is no conflict as such. It is just that he found a better priest to conduct his battles. Now this saga continues in Book 7, the Book of the Vasishtas, which deals with all the battles of Sudhas. Now, there are three hymns, 1833 and 83, are the main hymns, especially 18, which deal with the battles of Sudhas. And there are supplementary references in hymn 19 and 39, uh, also already mentioned 33, and the post-battle references in hymn 5 and 6, hymns 5 and 6. Now, the hymns will deal with Sudhas' battle in the east, mainly around the banks of the river Yamuna. And his great battle, the Dasharadnya, is in the west, on the banks of the river Parushni, the third and central river of the Punjab. So there are two different campaigns. The eastern ones are on the Yamuna, and the western ones are on the Parushni in the, in the Punjab. Now, as a, uh, we see the names of the enemies, you will notice that the enemies on the east are tribes which can be recognized as purely Indian, even in the post-Rigvedic scenario. Or the names are clearly uh, Vedic uh, Sanskrit names. But the western ones in the Dasharadnya, in sharp contrast, are tribes which either are not found afterwards in the Rigveda or in any other Indian text, or they are directly identifiable with the names of ancient Iranian, Armenian, Greek and Albanian tribes. Now the battle hymn 718 refers to the eastern as well as the western battles of Sudhas. So the, the eastern battles are referred to in hymns 18 to 20 and also in verses 6 and 13. Now verse 19 makes it clear that these battles took place on the Yamuna. 18, 19, 20, and verse 19 makes it clear that these took place, these battles took place on the Yamuna. Now the enemies in these eastern battles are Bheda, Ajaz, Shigrus, and Yakshus, Devaka Manyamana, Urvasha, Yakshu, and Matya, and perhaps also the ambiguous reference to Purus in 13. Now it will be seen that these Purus means the non-Bharata Purus to the east, because there were other non-Bharata Purus to the east. Now it will be seen that these eastern names are very much Indian even in post-Rigvedic times and are not connected with the names of latter-day Iranian or other Indo-European tribes. But when we come to the Western battles, it is a totally different story. Now we come to the Western opponents of Sudhas in the Dasharadne battles, which takes place in the center, central area of the uh, Punjab. Yeah. Now, these Western opponents of Sudhas in the Dasharadne battles, now 783.1 names Dasas, the Prithus Parthavas and Parshus Parshavas among the opponents of Sudhas. All the others are named in him 7.18. In verse 5, the Shimyus. In verse 6, the Brugus and Druhus. In verse 7, Alinas, Paktas, Bhalanas, Shivas and Vishanins. Kavi Chayamana is named in verse 8. He is the king of the enemy Anu coalition. Kavi Chayamana. Then, in verse 11, you have the Vaikarnas. And in verse 12, you have, the, you have Kavasha and Druhu. Now Kavasha, again, is the priest, just as uh, Kavi Chayman is the king of the coalition, Anu coalition, Kavasha, old Kavasha, he is described as a very old and revered priest of the Anu coalition. Now it will be seen that all these names, most of them missing in later Indian literature. Now, of course we have Bhrugul etc. in a separate context, but I have given 
complete details on the bhrigus in my books so i will not go into all that here now all these are identified with the names of later historical iranian armenian greek and albanian tribes or are found in the iranian avesta the exodus westward after this battle is referred to in 75.3 and 76.3 now what are these iranian tribes of later times in afghanistan in the avesta you find sairima that is the shimyu dahi that is the dasa vaikarata that is vaikarnan in north eastern afghanistan after the avesta in later times you find the uh, north eastern afghanistan and the northern most pakistan you find the nuristani or pishakin languages or the vishanin in pakhtunistan northwest pakistan and south afghanistan you find the pakhtun or pashtu that is the pakta in this battle in baluchistan in southwest pakistan and southeast iran you find the bolan or baluchi people the bhalanas in north eastern iran you find the parthian or parthava that is the kutu parthava so the parthian empire was in north eastern iran in south western iran you find the persian empire that is the persoa or persian that is persu and persava in the rigveda now in north western iran you also find the madras and anutrai not actually named in the baki hin and they are still found in india a group of them even in post rigvedic times however one group of them departed westwards along with the other tribes and became the uh, medians the mede or the medians were called madai in iranian in uzbekistan we have the khivas that is shiva or kharezmians in west turkmenistan we have the dahai that is the dasas and in ukraine and south asia you have the alan alina and sarmatian shimyu alan and sarmatian are very important historical tribes they are the alina and the shimyu now the thraco phrygian or armenian branch in turkey you find the phrygae or phrygian also known as brigae in the earliest uh, references they are the bhrugu of this battle and in romania and bulgaria you find the dacian or dacian tribes which are the dasas they are thraco phrygian or armenian tribes in greek tribes of later times you find the hellenes that is the greeks themselves were called hellenes and that they are the alina now some people think it's a this is a far drawn but it is not because alina is a non rigvedic word in rigveda there were very few words with l and this word alina is not found anywhere after the rigveda and it is found in the rigveda also only in this one battle hymn of the dasharadna after which they moved out of india and they are ever gone out of sight from india until they returned many many centuries later or uh, millennium later as the greeks and then you have in albania you have the sirmio or sirmium that is a shimyu now these people this word also shimyu is found only twice in the whole of the rigveda and it is never found after that and it is found also i mean this name proves the westward migration because the first time they mentioned is in the dasharadna battle and the second in uh, punjab and the second time they mentioned is in the uh, varshagira battle which takes place in afghanistan so by that time they have already moved to afghanistan and after that of course they move on till west asia and europe now there are two more avastan names that is kavasha the old priest of the anukoyation he is named in the avasta he the same name is found in the avasta as kavasha and kavi the king leader of the anukoyation is also there as kavi in the gender avasta now all these tribes please remember are located in the punjab at the time of the dasharatna and in later historic times they are found in a continuous belt if you check the earlier uh, slide which i given 
you will see that they start with afghanistan in the avesta afghanistan and baluchistan and pakistan in the post avestan times then they go to northeastern iran northwestern iran southeastern iran and southwestern iran then they are found in turkey they are also found in kyrgyzstan they are found in many parts of southeastern and eastern europe so there is a continuous bed that they found in later times and in this battle they are found all of their ancestors are found in the dasharatna battle which took place in the punjab after which they migrated westward now remember this it's not you know like uh, there are for example certain indian scholars are known for picking out words and then trying to draw connections between the indian words and foreign words but remember these are not stray words that you have picked out from somewhere in the different parts of the text these are all names which are found in just six verses from two hymns out of the 1028 hymns and 10552 verses of the rigveda and all these names pertain to a single historical event they cannot all be coincidentally cognate names and if you refuse to accept that alina the helena is something extremely strange that all these names should be so exactly cognate to these last tribes of indo-european linguistic history and the thing is that many of these correspondences have been accepted even by the western scholars like kavasha and kavi are known to be iranian names vigil has admitted accepted in many of his uh, papers that um, bhalana refers to the baluchis and that uh, pakta refers to the pakhtuns so you see all this is not uh, stories made up it is very very concrete and concise evidence in a small particular part of the rigveda now all the above named historical iran iranian tribes particularly the alanga sarmation now you will notice there are many historical iranian tribes which are not named in these tribes but among these the alanga sarmations include the linguistic ancestors of almost all other because they spread far and wide the alanga sarmation and they include the linguistic ancestors you can check in wikipedia elsewhere the uh, alanga sarmation are the ancestors of modern iranian groups not named above such as the skythians or shakas the ossetic people the kurds and even the presently slavic speaking people but formerly they used to speak iranian languages the serbs croats bulgarians and others so you see it practically covers not only the full geographical bed from punjab to southeastern and eastern europe but it covers practically all the iranian tribes known to history almost all uh, we also see here an important historical phenomenon of the trail of names you know when a tribe migrates from area a to area c in the middle it passes through area b now all the people from that tribe don't migrate a group of them migrate so you find, sometimes find the name in both a as well as c and you find it sometimes in a b as well as c areas in later historical times now here we see the same names found in different parts of the route from punjab to southeastern and eastern europe for example the name alina they are the anu alinas in punjab then you have the iranian alans found on most of west asia and then you have the greek helene found in southeastern europe the greek then the name shinyu you find it in the punjab in the battle list in the avesta in afghanistan you find the sairima in later iranian times you find the sarmatians or sarmaha who are spread out all over west asia and later you find the sirmio or sirmium in albania in southeastern europe a full trail of the same name going forward and uh, then you find the bhugo or atharvans the iranian priests are known as atharvans and the trakophagian tribe the brigae or frigae then you find the anumadra in punjab they remain even after the uh, battles 
and in fact they are not mentioned in the buses but we know they also migrated westward because we have the only iranian tribe which is not named there that is the madras or medians and they are the madras and finally anu dasa avestan bahi iranian dahe and trakofrigian dakil or dakian now you will notice that in each of these cases the original people in punjab spoke the anu language which must have been very close to the kuru language but as they moved westwards one group migrated for example the alinas migrated all the world way to greece and their language developed into the greek hellenic branch already it was a different branch and it the original language was retained by the people who went furthest and those who remained on the way in west asia they were absorbed into the iranian so the name alan remained but a language became iranian just as uh, the language of the remainder anus in india became indo aryan after the anus had passed away similarly shinyu sorry same one similarly shinyu are also indo indo aryans in avesta and iranians they are they are, they are the groups which remained on the way and became absorbed in the iranian and those who went furthest were the albanians the shinyu or shinyu they retained their original language and that is the same case with all the others now this the last of the historical this is now if we come to the third battle third group of bharatapur battle the varshagera battle now this is the last of the historical bharatapur battles it took place in afghanistan during the time of sadev and somaka who are descendants of sudas and they are described or referred to in books 1 and 4 that is in hymn 1.100 and in verse 430.18 and somaka and sadev also referred to in hymn 4.15 because they are the kings during the time of book 4 now the importance of this battle is it represents the culmination of the bharatapur westward thrust and the migration of the iranians secondly it is also battle recorded and remembered on both the sides the previous battles are remembered only in the rigveda and this battle is forgotten in other later indian traditions but it is remembered in the iranian records in the avesta and even far later traditions recorded in the shahnameh and finally it continuously with the dasharagna is reconfirmed by the reference to the shinyus who are found referred to in 718.5 and 100.18 that is the varshagera battle and they are not referred to anywhere else in any vedic or later record so these are the this battle is a continuation of the dasharagna battle now unlike the dasharagna references the varshagera references do not give details of the names of the anu enemies except the shinyus the shinyus are mentioned in god so we know that they are a continuation of the anu enemies but they name arana and chitraratha as enemies killed beyond the sarayu that is they don't name the indian side but they name the enemies arana and chitraratha and they are described as aryas that is arya is a word used in the rigveda for purus only so what this means is they were bharata purus or other purus who had joined up with the opponent so though they are killed by indra for the sake of the bharata purus they are still referred to as arya and it is emphasized that they were aryas who were killed by indra because they joined with the enemy forces now the five heroes of the hymns are mentioned rijrashwa sahadeva suradhas ambarisha and bhayaman and another important word in this battle is grama which is a special name for the troops of the varshagiras the, uh, the varshagiras are the five heroes that i just named rijrashwa etc now as many of these names are cryptic a little analysis is required to decipher them but we have clear clues from the rigveda and the iranian records the arana and chatiraratha are recorded as aryas 
that is Bharata Purush who fought from the enemy side. Now the Avesta records an Indo-Aryan hero who fought on the Iranian side. He is known as Manush Chitra. It is a modern name which has become Minocher. You may have heard many Parsis with the name. Now the Pahlavi text describes him as being born near the Manusha of Yash 19.1. Yash 19.1 is a part of the Avesta. And we know that this lake is found in Haryana. So he was a, born in Haryana. He was a Bharata Puri, even according to the Avesta. And according to the Cambridge history of Iran, his name means from the race of Manu and refers to the ancient mythical figure, Manu, son of Vivaswant, who was regarded in India as the first man. He has no place in Iranian tradition, where his role is played by Yama and later Gayumar. Now, Farwardin Yash refers to him as Manushchitra, son of Ayru. So there you have Chitra, son of Ayu, that is Chitra Ratha, son of Arana. You have to stretch the uh, Arana Ayu connection a bit, but it's again, it would be too much of a coincidence that these two names match so well. Now, Rijinashtra is directly identified because, because the Iranian tradition distinctly remember him as the main leader of the Turanian enemy side in the conflict. In the Avesta, he is known as Arjataspa, and in later texts as Arjaspa. And everyone has identified this with Rijiraswa. Second uh, name of the five is Sahadeva. He is also clearly identified. The Shahnameh Shah chapter 462 records another main companion or brother of Arjataspa who led his troops from the rear. He is called Hushdev. Now this is Sahadeva. Who in the Western language, the equivalent of Sahadeva would have been Hazadeva, which becomes Hushdev in the late Shahnameh. Third name. Next name, Suradhas, is more cryptic, but it is equally definite. It is clearly a family nickname for Sudas and his descendants. It means bountiful. Radhas means wealth. And so he has good wealth. And when is wealth good? When it is donated to others. So, Sudas also means the same thing. Now, many people, you know, wrongly uh, take the name Sudas as Sudasa. It is not. The word Dasa has the word Dasa in it. Sudasa, Sudas does not have the word Dasa. It is Sudas. And if you see the Rigveda, the name is not written with an S. It is Suda and two dots, you know, Suda, which grammatically becomes Sudase, etc. in case form. So he has been regularly referred to as Sudas. So people think it is Sudasa, it is not. So his name also means giver. It is from the root Da, which means to give. So he also, his name is exactly the same as Suradar. So now we know Sudas is not there in the Varshagira battles. So already, so it must be a name for his family members. Now Sahadeva is already named directly, so it must stand for Somaka, who is not directly named. Now, you will think this is speculation, but look, in all the six family books, this word is found only in two hymns, 3.33 and 53, in Vishwamitra's book. It is a word coined by Vishwamitra to refer to Sudas and his, uh, his, his clan. There are exactly the two hymns in book 3 which deal with the battles of Sudas. I've already, not battles actually, his migration and his yajna. Now, he's crossing the rivers and the yajna. Now, thrice it is found in book 4, which is the book of Somaka Sahadevya. So, in all the six family books, these are the only two places where the word Suradas is found. And after that, it is found in the new books, in the meaning of a good, a bountiful giver. Now, uh, it is found in these two battle hymns and in the new books, it is found in the Varshagira battle hymns. So, again the connection is there, like the word Shimyu. Now, the Avestan, the Abanyas refers to Arjatas along with his brother 
Humayaka, who is referred to as the worshipper of the devas. Now, Humayaka is clearly Somaka because H becomes H in Avesta, in Iranian. Now, a Parsi scholar, E. Shahriar Ji, who has analyzed the Iranian uh, Indo Aryan battles in detail long ago, means uh, uh, many decades ago, he also connects such Suradas with Humayaka. We have come connected him with different uh, angles like Suradhas and uh, Somaka, Humayaka. But he connects them because according to him, Suradhas and Humayaka on the ground, uh, that both mean one with much wealth. Now, I don't know Avestan and uh, I don't know uh, Humayaka means that, but that is what this Isharyarji claims. So again, you see now that Suradhas in the Varshagir hymn, it clearly refers to Somaka. Now, Ambarish and Bhayaman are not found in similar forms in the Iranian records. And they are so, so these two names are not so immediately identifiable. Now, Ambarish, this is an aside, this is not part of the name. Ambarish is an Ikshwaku family name. And as the northwestern branch of the Ikshwakus were allies of the Bharatapurus, it is possible that they were northwestern Ikshwakus. But that is not pertinent here. Just remember that these two names are not found directly in the Avesta. But again, we have Isharyaji who identifies them with two other family members of Arjataspa, Vidarshnik, a brother of Arjataspa, and Vandramaini, father of Arjataspa, who is named in the Abhanyas with Arjataspa. Now, on the ground, that Ambarish and Vidarshnik both mean the one with beautiful garments, and Bhayaman and Vandramaini both mean the fearless one. So, how far you want to accept these uh, translations is a different matter, but the thing is, the whole group of names fits in perfectly without any exception on some ground or the other. Again, if you want to call it a coincidence, coincidence then that is really special pleading. All these cannot be coincidences restricted to a few names found in a few hymns referring to certain fixed historical incidents. Now, finally, the word grama. Now, we know grama means village. In the Rigveda also, it means village almost everywhere. But in twice, in the old books, once it uh, you find once it means the troops of the Bharata Purus, and once it means village, the new meaning. That is in the old book three, it refers to the Bharata Puru trips, three thirty three point one. Again, that hymn of Vishwamitra, which refers to Sudas, it calls the Bharata Puru trips of under Sudas by the name Grama. In two point twelve point seven, which is a middle book, not an old book like six three seven. In that. It is found ten, uh, It is found in the new meaning of village. And afterwards in the new books, it is found once. Again, it is used for the Bharatapuru trips of Suhadeva in this Varshagira battle hymn. And otherwise it is found ten times as village. So only twice it is used for the Bharatapuru troops. Once in the battle of Sudas, the Dasharadna. And uh, not, not in the battle of uh, Dasharadna, but it is referred in, uh, to in the context of Sudas. And then again, it is referred to in the context of Sahadeva, the descendant of Sudha. So now, what is the connection with this grammar? In the oldest part of the Avesta, Zarathustra, in Yatna 32, 12 to 14, he refers to the grammar as the most powerful and persistent of his enemies. So you see, all the names are found recorded in both the Indian side as well as the Iranian side. So that is the difference between Sudha's eastern battles and his western battles. And they fit in with all the de uh, relevant details from Iranian records. 
Now, another thing, continuity you will notice is the Parthian kings, Haryana to Afghanistan. Now, the ancient Parthians, you know, the Iranians consist of many tribes, Persians, Parthians, Medians, and uh, then you have all these islands are missing, etc. Now, in the oldest book of the Rigveda, book 6, the leader of the proto-Iranian Anus is Abhyavartin Chayamana, and in the thing, he is called a Parthava or Parthian. And at that time, he is in Haryana. In book 7, in the Dasharadna uh, battle, the leader of the Anu, Anu coalition is the king Kavi Chayamana, who is clearly a descendant of Abhyavartin Chayamana. So he is also a Parthian, and this time he is in the Punjab. And we know that Parthians and Parthians are both referred to in the Dasharadna hymns also as among the enemies of Sudas. So we know that Kavi Chayamana is one of those Parthians. He is the king and the leader. Now, in the Avesta, the royal dynasty of the Iranians, even at the time of Zarathustra, the king who was at the time of Zarathustra is Kavi Vishtas. So, it is known as the Kavyan dynasty. In later texts, it is called the Kayanian, but in the Avesta, it is called Kavyan, descended from the ancestral king Kavi. So, this is the ancestral king Kavi who was in the Dasharajna battle in the Punjab. Now, this time, this royal dynasty of the Iranians is in Afghanistan. Again, you see the movement of the Parthian dynasty from Haryana to Punjab to Afghanistan. Now, the Avesta does not say that the Kavyan dynasty is Parthian. But in later times, it is the Parthians who consistently claim that the Kavyan dynasty of the Avesta was a Parthian dynasty. So, the emigration of the Iranians from the borders of Haryana to the mountains of Afghanistan, long before they entered Iran and Central Asia, is therefore a matter of record. Now, the bigger picture. The Rigveda and other Vedic texts and the Puranas and epics refer to countless battles and wars. Most of them were local affairs and did not leave detailed traditional memories in the Indian site. The Bharatapuru battles were just such battles which did not leave details beyond the few hymns and verses which deal with them. And therefore, they were forgotten by Indian tradition. However, they are extremely important to us in the modern context, particularly the Dasharajna and the Varshagara battles because they provide us with actual recorded details about extremely crucial ancient events and help us to solve the biggest historical mystery of all time, the problem of the original homeland and the migrations of the speakers of the Indo-European languages. As I said, which are today spoken first languages to 46% of the population of the world. Now, as per the linguistic analysis of the Indo-European languages, there are 12 known branches which were settled in and around the original homeland, homeland wherever it was. They claim it was a steppe, but they said that wherever this homeland was, whether it is a steppe or Anatolia or anywhere else, this is the uh, order in which the branches started migrating out of that homeland. Now, the Anatolian, Hittite, and Tokharian branches in that order were the first to emigrate. Now, it is surprising that the Tokharian branches found in Central Asia and the Anatolian branch. Hittite branch is found in Turkey in its first appearance in historical records, but it entered Turkey from the northeast. So obviously they also went from Central Asia. And the biggest proof of this is that the oldest sculpted representations of the Hittites in West Asia show them having Mongoloid features. So they could not have come in the setting of that time. They obviously came from Central Asia into Turkey. So what the um, uh, our Indian records tell us that they migrated into Central Asia and then migrated westwards into Turkey. 
while the tokharians did not migrate at all they remained in central asia till they became extinct 1000 years ago now the next to emigrate were the five european or northwestern branches italic celtic germanic baltic and slavic now they passed through central asia all the way to europe through siberia and uh, the steppes and finally according to the linguists only five last branches were left in the homeland albanian greek armenian thracophigian and iranian and indo aryan now this is what the linguists say and we found it find it actually recorded in the names of the tribes in the battle of ten kings in the rigveda so all uh, or uh, this settles the issue of the geographical location of the original homeland once and for all now there were three schemes of migration of the indo-european tribes and branches from india the events of the bharatapur tribe led to the third great migration of the four anu last branches albanian greek armenian and iranian westward through afghanistan into west asia and beyond that is they uh, adopted a southern route But the first early migration was of the Anatolian and Tokharian branches, which migrated northwards from Afghanistan into Central Asia and settled down there for many centuries. Tokharian period became extinct in the western and eastern parts of Central Asia, respectively. They are remembered in later Puranic traditions as the Uttar Madhra and Uttar Kuru, and this is proved by the fact that Uttar Kuru contains the root Tokru, which was the name of the Tokharians in many texts. and many linguists have commented on the fact not on uttar kuru but they have pointed out that tokru was the name of the tokarians now of course some people dispute it but there will always be people who dispute it now detailed and conclusive evidence on all the migrations are given in greater detail in my books and blogs here i am only talking about these bharatapur batches now the between these two migrations what was the second great migration of the druhu tribes linguistic ancestors of the five european branches Italic, Celtic, Germanic, Baltic, and Slavic, which took place in the pre-Rigvedic period. So they had already migrated to Afghanistan and from there into Central Asia in the pre-Rigvedic period, though they were still in contact with the uh, Anus and Purus to their south. Now the early stages of the migration are actually recorded in the Puranic traditions, as in the five uh, Puranic uh, references here, which say that these tribes migrated northwards from Afghanistan into Central Asia. later they uh, the purana rakhos don't follow them with a video camera all the way to europe but we can know now that they migrated northwestward all the way to europe now remnants of the druyus are still found as western allies of the anus in the kasharadna bhakti the main druyus are gone but again remnants remain still they were still there in the punjab a few remnants but they were a minor group and they had aligned with the anus in the kasharadna bhakti so you find druyus also mentioned as a minor segment in the kasharadna bhakti but later they faded away from the pages of traditional indian history which knows nothing more about the druids now the priestly class of the druids the celtic druids are remembered as enemies in both the rigveda and the avesta because in the avesta when zoroaster who is a bhrugu or atharvan remember now these three tribes tribal groups the purus anus and druhus had three groups of priests the priests of the purus or indo aryans were the um uh, uh, angirases the priests of the proto iranians were the atharvans or bhrugus the present day zoroastrian priests are still called atharvans and um and the priests of the druhus the celtic druids were called druids now this is recorded in the dasharatna battle where it once refers to the enemies as bhrugus and druhus that is the priests of the two coalition against them 
Bhrugu and Dhuyu. That is uh, the, uh, the Bhrugu Atharvans, Iranian Bhrugu Atharvans and the Druids. Now they are remembered in the Avesta also as enemies of Zarathustra, who is a Bhrugu Atharvan. Now when uh, Zarathustra is meditating in the forest, as in many traditions, you find it uh, even in the Buddha's uh, this thing and other traditions also, when someone is meditating, enemies come and try to distract them. Now, in the, in the Avesta, the two people who try to distract um, Zarathustra from the meditations are Angra and Druj. So obviously the Angra and Druj is the priest of the other two tribal conglomerates of the north. In sum, it is impossible to arrive at a correct understanding of Rigvedic history without understanding that Vedic culture and religion were not the ancestral culture or religion of the whole of India, but only of the Purus. There was a type of religion common to the Druhus, Anus and Purus, consisting of ritual fire worship, Yadnyat. The Druids also did that. In the temples in Ireland, they kept eternal fires, like in the Zoroastrian uh, Atash Behram. And uh, the uh, Zoroastrian priests contain Yadnyat, just like the Vedic priests, and they are called Yasna, which are given rise to the modern Persian word Jashna. Parsis still hold Jashna, you will remember, and Jashna has acquired the meaning of uh, uh, celebration, so to say, in Urdu and all it is used like that. And also nature worship. You see Zorasan praying to the rising sun, praying to lakes, praying to water, praying to the fire. And the memorization and recitation, the composition, memorization and recitation of hymns. This is done in the Rigveda, it is done in the Avesta. And if you read the details of the Druids of Ireland, this was also their main occupation. They used to compose hymns. Uh, learn them by heart and recite them. Now, so these three northern people, Druyus, Anus, and Purus, consist of the 12 branches which have been reconstructed into Proto Indo European by the linguists. Now, they have not been able to take into consideration the ancestral forms of the internal Indo Europeans, that is, the Yadus, Turvasus, Ikshakus, and others, because those are not recorded anywhere. Because later as Puru culture spread everywhere, the Vedic culture, their language got merged into the Vedic language. But they had other languages belonging to the Indo-European family. Now, as the Puru culture spread all over India, all the religions of India merged together into what we call Hinduism today. The Vedic culture of the Purus, you know, all this Yajna, nature, worship and him. The nature religions of the Yadus. You know, in the Mahabharata, uh, Krishna, the Yadus worship the uh, mountain and Indra is angry because he wants them to worship him. So he sends a, uh, so he sends a storm and Krishna saves the uh, Yadus by picking up Gordon on his uh, finger. So you see, here you see the Yadus originally worship mountains, they did not worship Indra. Now, as uh, then you have the philosophical systems of the Ikshvakus. Now, see, there is very little philosophy in the Vedic text. It arises only in the Upanishads. And if you see where the Upanishads are situated, many of them are situated in Bihar, in the courts of Janaka. And where are all the other philosophical systems of India originated? Where did Buddhism originate? In Bihar. Where did Jainism originate? In Bihar. Where did Charvaka system and other uh, uh, atheistic and agnostic systems of India, philosophy, Indian philosophies originate? In Bihar. And so you see, all the philosophical systems were in the east. Further east were the tantric systems in uh, probably West Bengal and the Orissa, the region. And the idol culture and temple culture, which is the central part of Hinduism today, 
it was there in central and south india so you see hinduism today has not come from the vedic culture of the rigveda it is an amalgamation of all the indian cultures which existed at that time only thing is they were not recorded because the rigveda records only the culture of the bharata purush not of the others now the most important uh, aspect of the data on the bharata purush battle is that it provides us direct recorded evidence that the proto indo european homeland uh, from where the last branches emigrated was north india now this location is also proved by other factors which are not part of this talk for example an examination of all the linguistic evidence now um, this whole thing started with linguistics you know nowhere was it ever recorded that there was any cult people called aryans or called anything who migrated from the west to india from india to the west or anywhere no one knew about any such thing no tradition recorded any such idea until the european scholars came here they studied the indian languages and they found such a striking similarity between sanskrit and the languages of europe so striking that it could not be chance it is not borrowed it represents an ancestral language a common ancestral language so then they started studying all the languages of the world and they got this of the uh, uh, different language families the indo european dravidian austric uh, sino tibetan austric semitic etc now uh, and then they didn't know at that time where was the original homeland many of them thought it must be india because sanskrit has the oldest culture but as they produced linguistic argument the view shifted to the steppes of south russia however the thing is that people have been so dazzled and mesmerized by the idea that linguistic proves linguistics proves the steppe homeland that no one has examined the linguistic evidence however i have done it in detail all the linguistic evidence in my books it has also done by done by uh, been done by other scholars some more uh, aspect by conrad els and by nicolas kazanas who have also discovered many points which prove linguistically that india was the original homeland and not the steppes now uh, this linguistic evidence is very massive it covers every single point of linguistic which can show us the location everything in the linguistic in linguistics does not show us the location it just shows the relation but something shows where the original location was and all of these things show it was north india and not the steppes so that is a very vast topic which obviously i cannot touch upon here and the second is the datable evidence for the recorded mitanni material in west asia which proves that the rigveda goes back to beyond 3000 bc in haryana now the mitanni tribes are recorded in west asia in syria and iraq it was an empire which was founded in 1500 bc it covered a large part of present day syria and iraq and it was one of the main empires of west asia rivaled by the hittites and by the egyptians and babylonians now the mitanni people they are uh, they are indo aryans they are the oldest recorded indo aryans outside india later we have the romani or the gypsies in modern times who migrated from india 1000 years ago but before that we have the mitanni who are actually recorded in europe in uh, sorry west asia and they are recorded before the oldest datable record in india which is the oldest datable record in india not the rigveda because we don't have datable text of the rigveda the oldest datable record is the ashoka pillar which we date to the 3rd th or 4th 3rd century bc before that there is no datable uh, record except the indus valley harappan record but that language is not yet been deciphered so before that in 1500 bc we have the mitanni records recorded by carbon dating and other scientific methods in west asia and they are purely indo aryan names some people foolishly say you know 
that uh, the oldest records are in west asia so it means that uh, the vedic people came from there they are not found in india they are found in west asia actually that is a, how you know the kind of illiterate arguments which are sometimes made now if you examine the mitanni language or whatever words are there in the mitanni language which are common to the rigveda you find i have shown you know uh, in detail in all my listing that the rigveda consists of two very distinct parts the old rigveda and the new rigveda the old rigveda is book 63742 and the new rigveda is books 158910 now all the significant words in the mitanni data are found in the new rigveda they are completely missing in the old rigveda which means that the language of the mitanni developed in india at the time of composition of the new rigveda and at the time of composition of the old rigveda the mitanni's ancestors were inside india speaking the old rigvedic language before the new words entered their speech during the period of the new rigveda so this shows that they went from india now what is more now if they are already found in they are found already the ancestors of the mitanni are found in west asia in 1800 bc they have already forgotten the ancestral language except retaining certain names and a few words which remained in the mitanni kingdom so if they are found already in west asia in 1800 bc obviously they must have left india at least 200 years before and then they reached at least 200 i say before 2000 bc and they reached west asia and they actually forgot the ancestral language and merged with the local people by and large so they left india before 2000 bc so in india the new rigvedic period was well before 2000 bc now before the new rigvedic period was the old rigvedic period which is so far before the new rigvedic period that the language is completely different i have shown in detail in my uh, uh, blogs and books that the language of the new rigveda contains a huge massive vocabulary which is completely missing in the old rigveda and parts of that vocabulary are found in the avesta as well as in the mitanni but not in the old books so the old books of the rigveda go back beyond the mitanni beyond the avesta and beyond the new rigveda now the and when we see the geography of the text the new rigveda is spread out over the whole rigvedic area that is from haryana to afghanistan but the old rigveda is spread out only from in western uttar pradesh and haryana that is to the east of the saraswati and then the movements of the bharatapurus westwards in the battles of sudas the dasharadnya and the hari upya are described in the old books of the rigveda so now we see how the purus were originally in haryana migrated or spread out westwards till afghanistan so you see when did you date the old rigveda obviously well before 2500 bc and in that period the old rigveda knows only the areas of haryana and western uttar pradesh it does not know the areas it does not even know the indus river it does not know the word saptasindhu it does not know the word gandhari all these words appear in uh, the new rigveda it does not know the bactrian camel it does not know sheep and goats which are found in the north in kashmir and uh, afghanistan and uh, pakistan they all appear in the new rigveda and their words in common with avesta so which means that the old rigveda goes back beyond 2500 bc in the old rigveda the names of the rivers are all purely indo aryan names which means that then they are not people who newly arrived in the area from somewhere they are long residents of the area because river names don't change that fast so the in before 2500 bc the rivers of haryana and punjab are already indo aryan names so the rigveda goes far back beyond 2000 bc 
so when all these fraudulent genetic experts so called they claim that there is evidence that genetic shows that the step gen was brought into india by the step immigrants after 2000 bc you see they all accept that it could not have occurred before 2000 bc it occurred after 2000 bc so obviously it has nothing to do with the aryans the indo european language is in india and the migration from india is recorded in our text so these are independent subjects i have just mentioned them in short now uh, another thing is that uh, they say the uh, step dna entered india after 2000 bc but if you look at the reich report of which so much was made by reich and his uh, fellow scholars and by uh, tony joseph in his book early indians you will see that the earliest step dna which is found is not found in haryana or punjab it is found in swat area which is the northernmost area of pakistan which borders on central asia which means they were not spread the step gene was not found all over india it was found it first entered in the swat area and what are the dates it is 1100 bc to 100 bc so the step dna entered india in the extreme northern part in 1100 bc so how can they claim that the vedic aryans came after 2000 bc and brought those genes into india so you see they are com committing a pure and shameless brazen fraud as i said these are independent subjects not part of the subject of the particular talk so i will end my talk here the first time i think that i um i hear any talk about the dasharajnya battle which is indeed a, a a world historical event because without it the um the iranians and even the greeks would not have been a separate uh, political entity and um so the whole history of the persian empire of greek civilization alexander's conquest and so on all would not have been there but for the um uh the battle of the 10 kings uh just um a, a little afterthought um the, the the very last um week before i had to run away from india for the corona stuff uh i was in uh, <laughs> i was in the basin of the saraswati river in the brahmarishi ashram near chandigarh and so there i met someone who explained you see the place where the battle of the 10 kings had taken place was apparently the site is known on the parushni river which is exactly on the border between india and pakistan so you could say jocularly but nevertheless that the <laughs> battle of the 10 kings was the first indo pak war which obviously was won by the indian side as usual uh but nevertheless you see if i were the uh the governor of east punjab or so i would set up a big theme park there you know and get people to you know to celebrate the ancient heroes and the start of this uh you know this world history so <laughs> this has all become possible thanks to uh your enlightening um analysis of the the 10 kings war so thank you shrikant
only thing one point if i uh, if you don't mind may i make one comment that uh, yes it is true but we cannot really call it an indo pak war because you know those people of pakistan at that time were not people who had been converted to a foreign religion they were purely indian they were all as indian as the purus the purus anus druyos were all purely indian so you know uh, i in particular not only in case of this uh, dasharadhni war but in the case of any text i don't think it is patriotic of us to take the side of one person and oppose the other person in mahabharata for example we support everything that the pandavas do and criticize for example karna even when he is he is the wronged one so i don't accept this kind of thing i think we have to have a open mind because especially none of them are foreigners they are uh, a foreign invaders but here i would like to remark you see this is one of the absolutely great things about your uh, analysis of the of the ten kings battle that you emphasize that this was not a battle between good and evil or something very many vedic apologists say that the aryans were the good ones and the rest were the evil ones you know perhaps um uh, this is an effect also of the fact that asura uh which is a class of gods but which became the favorite gods of the avestan people uh that that has later in india become a term for demon so they um they project this meaning onto the ancient time when they see this as a battle between gods and demons and you know it was not at all um the likeness with an indo-pak war is also fostered by the fact that regardless of this this wrong interpretation of asura and so on but that there really yeah. is a certain religious distinction uh in the fact that the um fascista describes the enemies as um adeva ayajnya and anindra so they are without gods without a fire sacrifice and without indra which is a very exact description of the zoroastrian religion which demonizes indra apparently because in some earlier battle you see the persians as well as the indians had invoked indra but of course he could only give victory to, to only one side so the persian side had lost <laughs> and whereas most people when they ask for something from god and don't get it they blame themselves they say oh i i i sinned or i didn't fast enough or or something you see the the iranians were made of sterner stuff so <laughs> they looked up to indra and they said okay if you don't give us victory we reject you and so so they became anindra they became adeva they rejected the devas and they did not have the yajna in the sense that they also worshiped the fire but they did not use it as a medium for sacrifices they don't throw things into the fire so of course you see the relation between these different sects was not the same as that between islam and hinduism you know i mean that is of course an unjustified projection but nevertheless there is a slight uh religious difference and that was not the reason for the battle you see that only became important to fascista afterwards i mean when the battle was analyzed then of course you know he made a big thing of this religious difference but 
Nevertheless, it's an interesting datum that that religious difference is there, and it confirms the identification of the enemies as the Iranians. I have two questions. Uh, were Jews and Turks immigrated from uh, Hindustan? And uh, this Kalayavana who comes in Mahabharata, where was his uh, kingdom exactly situated? I don't think the Jews have any such tradition. <laughs> I don't know about it. It may be one of those uh, theories where people, you know, take all the people, uh, the origin of all the people in the world from India, but uh, I don't think the Jews themselves have a claim that they are from India. Turks have no connection. These are all later historical people. And see, I have, uh, in the very beginning, that is why I said, you know, if you try to ask, for example, who was Turoyana in the Rigveda, and he is there in the Rigveda, and yet he has no connection with, the, because as I said, this Rigveda is the oldest text. And when it just refers to a name once or twice, we have no means of knowing anything more about that name. Unlike, you know, in the modern songs, as I said, when people are named, we already know the context and the story behind those names. But when names are just mentioned in the Rigveda, we know nothing about them. So you see, even names which are there in the Rigveda, we cannot really uh, put them in the historical place. So if you just uh, take some modern people like Turks and Jews and try to locate them in the Rigveda, I at least have no means of, uh, you know, helping in that matter. Where was the Kalayavana's kingdom was exactly situated? Yeah, I really don't know because the, ka the word Kala, which means uh, age or period, time, Kal. Now this word is a very, very late Rigvedic word which appears only once in the Rigveda, in the last book of the Rigveda. It is not there a Rigvedic word. It is not found in any other Indo-European band. It is a very new word, unique to that. So, and Yavanato is certainly not found anywhere. That was the name of the Greeks, the Ionians. So, if the Mahabharata or any text talks of Kala Yavanada, I don't think it has any connection with anything in the Rigveda. And now, if you want to know where his kingdom was, I think you have to search the records in the book where he is referred to. I, I can't answer it from the Rigveda. Just a little uh, addition to uh, your answer about Jews coming from India. It so happens, you know, and this I say at the risk of nurturing the miserable, you know, Hindu tendency to deduce everything coming from India. But it so happens that the very first Greek mention of the Jews is when Aristotle says that the Jews are descendants of the sages from India. And, <laughs> and I, may, I may add to this that the Jews indeed came from Ur of the Chaldees, uh, according to the Bible, that's where Abraham came from, which is like exactly near the ports in Mesopotamia that traded with India. So <laughs> strictly speaking, it's not entirely impossible. Uh, the Jews spoke a Semitic language, so they, that has no connection okay. with the Rigvedic language or culture. Secondly, what the Greeks say about the Jews and the connecting them with India in a much, much later period is uh, we cannot trace it back to real origins because, as I said, the Yavanas were mentioned in the Mahabharata. No one knows that they are the descendants of the Alinas who are mentioned in the Rigveda. So the contacts have been completely lost, and it is the new people who have come back into India as the Greeks. So how the Greeks should know that the Jews came from uh, India, the sages of uh, India, I don't know. On the other hand, you find the Bible, it tries to draw up a family tree where, where the sons of, you know, uh, uh, there is all this Ham and Shem and uh, Joshua or whatever. And all the people of the world are derived from them, including Chinese, Indian and all. 
See, those are things you cannot take seriously. So okay. I don't know how far this thing can be corroborated. No, but that's why I say it's a, it's a it's a coincidence, and so it risks yeah. feeding this idea that everything and everyone came from India. I mean, yeah. I I also don't take this serious, but it so happens. Uh, okay, the first thing is that uh, the entire movement that you have uh, shown from uh, east to west in your yeah. books and in your talk uh, that is predicated on the uh, early Rigveda and the later Rigveda, the relative chronology of the two parts, right? Yeah. So my question is, what if a, an entire within a book of the Rigveda, say Mandala Five or Mandala Six, which is one yeah. of the uh, youngest or the oldest? You know, uh, what if within a single mandala, it is actually a layered text in the sense that, you know, you uh, have a lot of chronological mixing within the verses and within yeah. the hymns. So, uh, would, that, would that not really change the entire scenario? So long as you keep the chron relative chronology at the base of books, that's, that sounds fine. Yeah, you're right. But there is a difference. See, in my recent uh, blog article, the chronological gulf between the old Rigveda and the new Rigveda. I have analyzed the huge mass of names. And those names, you know, cover almost every hymn in book 1, 8, 9, and 10. And almost every, uh, in 8, 9, and 10. And a huge percentage of the hymns in book 1 and 5. And they are found only in the new books they are missing in the old Rigveda. So even if there are layers within each book, those layers are not different from each other. Especially in book 5, for example, you find... Uh, the geographical names or the names of particular people, they are spread out throughout the book five, including in the older hymns as well as the redacted hymns. And that is the only main distinction within the family books. There are old hymns and there are redacted hymns which were, you know, modified and changed all the time. So they exhibit a later linguistic uh, status. State. But in spite of that, all the hymns in book five come in the late stage. So... Uh, even if there are layers and you manage to find layers within one book, all those layers are just sub-layers, part of one big layer. I mean, you can see that article okay. of mine, a huge list okay. of uh, words and the mm -hmm. hymns and verses that they cover. It covers all these new books and simply refuses to touch the old books, except sometimes in the redacted hymns, which were changed in the new period. So at the risk of annoying you, I will ask you this genetics-related question. When you yeah. talk about these migrations out of India, uh, yeah. I think maybe you have not explicitly stated it, but you are probably looking at only elites or certain clans moving out rather than entire populations, which would not result in a genetic signal. Am I correct in under making yeah, that exactly, inference? Exactly. That is what I am saying. That the, uh, even by, as per uh, normal linguistic theory, the, this, these languages were carried from one, from one area to other by a process of elite dominance. So the people of that area adopted the local language. Exceptions were where they entered some big civilizational area, like when they entered Mesopotamia, the Hittites, the Mitanni, the Kassites, all lost their original languages and merged into the local languages. But when they entered areas in, uh, say, Central Asia, Steppes, and Europe, which did not have big civilizations at that time, their languages were adopted by the local people. So it was the local people, as I repeatedly say in my books, uh, the Greeks who came in uh, later Mauryan times, they were not descendants of the Alinas. Their language was a descendant of the Alina language which was taken there by the some groups of Alinas in the ancient past and adopted by the local people of Greece. So there is no genetic question of it. There is a difference between genetic and linguistic uh, situation.
your blogs, you have also explained how uh, the memory of the Druhyu people and the uh, and the Brigu and the Anu people, and also today the Battle of the Ten Kings, is some sort of in, in, in somehow preserved in other European branches. So, what yeah. other um, common elements you see in the European branches, uh, which are specific to India, and which can also strengthen our uh, out of India theory? Uh, that's one. And, and while you do that, you can also explain uh, the importance of the Proto-Indo-European word for elephant, because elephants is, it, is, is something important, which is only found in India out of all the possible uh, pie homeland uh, uh, hypothesis. And the other last one was about um, the name Bharat of uh, our country and how is it, how, is it related somehow to the Bharatapurus and I mean, if, if, if there is any similarity or any relation between them, could you please elaborate? Thank you. Well, I have no idea because I have not studied all the Indo, all the European languages to that extent. I have studied the Rigveda. So, uh, that is so far as my expertise at the moment uh, goes. So, that question I cannot uh, uh, answer that at the moment. The second question is about, uh, I think, the elephant. Now, this is again, uh, I spoke about linguistics. Now, this is where again the linguists adopt a very fraudulent. Uh, attitude. I have written a very long and detailed blog. It is that very heavy and tedious and it gives all kinds of detailed information on the subject on the elephant and the Proto-Indo-European homeland. If you read that, you will see what massive evidence there is that the Indo-Europeans went out from India because of the name of the elephant. The elephant is found only in India and Southeast Asia and in Africa. Now, no one claims that the Indo-Europeans originated in Southeast Asia or Africa. And yet, all the branches, uh, oldest branches of Indo-Europeans have a common word for elephant, which all the linguists firmly refuse to take into consideration. And yet, sometimes when they do take, to take, the, take it into consideration, they deny it. They say, no, no, the Hittite word was borrowed from somewhere, and the Greek word was borrowed from somewhere, and the Latin word was borrowed from somewhere. But all these words, like the, uh, I have shown the original word was ribha, ribha, from the root rib, which means to grab. So it has the same meaning as hastin. Hand. See, the elephant, the most prominent feature of the elephant is the hand. So, in later time, now we call it hasti, 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 etc. From the word hastin or hand. So, the word ribha for grabbing, which you do with the hand. So, the original word was ribha. That was prakritized already by Rigvedic times because it was such an old, ancient, domesticated animal in India that already ribha has become ibha. However, the r part is, uh, and Remember in Proto-Indo-European, R and L are alternating. Now you find uh, the English, uh, the Greek word is elephas, so which is clearly derived from Gribha, Ilfa. So because BH becomes PH in Greek, so it is a direct derivation of the word Gribha. Then the Hittite word for ivory is Lapa, which again is clearly derived from Gribha. And the Latin word is Ebur. Now Ebur is, takes place by a uh, what is known as a, um, uh, what that word is, you know, where within a word, the word continues, but one uh, letter from the word gets transferred to another part of the word. Like in English, we say crocodile, but in uh, Spanish, we say crocodilo. So the R comes in the beginning, although in English, uh, in the English, it is in the beginning, but in the Italian Spanish word, it comes afterwards, that's grillo. So in a school, as I always mention, uh, Catholic boys from Goa always used to say, ask for ask. So you see, they transpose the, change the order of the two sounds, K and S. So that kind of process took place, and what must have been Rebu or Erbu became Ebur in Latin. 
So all these words very clearly have a common origin in the word river, and yet the uh, linguists very fraudulently refuse to accept this. They sometimes don't even mention it because they don't know what arguments to give against it. And when they do mention it, they come out uh, say, "No, no, these are all unconnected words." You know, this um, um, Sanskrit word was borrowed from something else. The Latin word was borrowed from another language, and so also the Hittite and Greek words. Now, how is it that four distinctly different Indo-European languages from four different parts adopted the same word from other languages? But there is no record of any of those other languages. Neither the language from which Sanskrit borrowed, nor the language from which Greek borrowed, or the language from which Latin or uh, Hittite borrowed. Yet all these branches separately it seems borrowed that same word out of thin air. So you see how fraudulent they are. And yet this uh, Mallory uh, in his book he tells us that if any word is found in Hittite branch and in any one of the other eleven branches, we have to accept it as an original word. And then the same scholar afterwards refuses to accept this word "river," which is found not only in Hittite but also in Greek, Latin, and uh, uh, Vedic, and also indirectly in Germanic and Slavic, where it has been transferred to Tamil. Now, this shows a kind of degree of hypocrisy which is there. And then they say, you know, that uh, see, all these words cannot be derived from a common form. But I have just shown how all of them can be derived from "river," which none of them have ever taken into consideration if they even thought of it. And at the same time, you know the word for fox. Now there are different words for fox in all the different languages, but they are all derived from an original word. This the European uh, the linguists accept, and then they say all of them don't lead back to one form. There are five or six original protoforms, different different protoforms from which all these words came. So in that case, they are willing to accept that it was an original word. And here they use that argument to say that all the words for elephant are not from a common word, so they cannot be an original word. So this is the degree of Fraudulent behavior. I won't even call it wrong scholarship. I always say, you know, the early Indologists, Max Miller or whatever, they wrote many wrong things, but they were not fraudulent. They just didn't think of this thing. They were looking through certain glasses at the evidence and they interpreted them wrongly. But today, what we see in the leftist scholars and the Western scholars is pure fraudulence. They refuse to even look at evidence which disproves them. There is, for example, the linguistic evidence by um, who shows. That the European branches, German, uh, Italic, Celtic, etc., they borrowed words from Central Asia, which means that they passed through Central Asia. And she takes the, um, um, the center of origin of the spread of the Indo-European languages in Central Asia, Bactria. So this proves that because the Druyus went into Afghanistan and then they moved to Europe. So when I quoted her and gave her full detailed linguistic analysis in my book. She was attacked from all sides by Western scholars. How could you write this thing? You must take it back. So, in her recent, if you see her paper on Academia, she has added a preface which says that uh, I take back my what I had written. I, I, she doesn't deny it because she doesn't. She knows that what she wrote was right. She cannot deny it. So she says what I wrote was correct. It was a beautiful theory, but still, uh, it does not show that uh, they went from bacteria. Bacteria before that, they must have come from the west. So you see, this is the degree of fraudulence which is there in so-called scholarship. So it is up to us whether we present a united face and force them to accept the truth. One person uh, shouting out in one place is not enough. For example, since 200 years, all the Western scholars, linguists, archaeologists, Indologists have been saying that the Saraswati of the Rigveda is the Ghagga Rakra River. But as soon as in the last 30, 20 years we pointed out 
that the rigveda is situated on the saraswati river and all the harappan sites are also on the saraswati river so that proves the identity immediately now all the scholars they are going back and they are saying no no ghagharakra uh, is not the saraswati of the rigveda the saraswati of the rigveda is in afghanistan the same scholars who had insisted like vidjal that it is in uh, the ghagharakra now they say it is in afghanistan and most fraudulent of all is people, when they claim that oh, all the time we had said it was in afghanistan now it is a hindu nationalist who claiming it is in ghagharakra but you you can check the records of what all the indologists and linguists have said up till now all of them said it was ghagharakra and now they are blatantly lying and saying that all along we thought it was we said it was afghanistan and now it is the hindu nationalists who are saying it is in ghagharakra so that shows the level of uh, fraud to which these scholars can go to uh, perpetuate their disproved theories all the actual uh, writer produced all sort of evidence to show that there was no uh, 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 islamic structure below that and uh, i mean uh, no uh, hindu structure below the babri masjid and then when finally the archaeologists proved it by actually digging on the spot and even the supreme court bench including a muslim judge accepted that yes there was a hindu structure below the aba now they quiet they don't accept that they were lying and being fraudulent all this while so you see we have to counter them but we need not take them too seriously shrikant ji uh, could you tell us the name of the lady researcher the indologist uh, who had to backtrack you just who was threatened conrad uh, could you tell who is that uh, your yes. yeah yeah this is joanna nichols yeah yeah sorry joanna nichols and, and, and the same story the same story can be told about another scholar with another very important discovery namely klaus peter zoller who discovered proto bangani which is a deep layer in a certain dialect in kumaon a uh, hindi dialect um where you have a substratum of uh ancient indo-european words that have traits of european languages so this shows that european languages actually left from india and so he also has uh, has written that yes i stand by my discovery and other linguists like anvita abi like hans heinrich hock have confirmed it uh, but nevertheless i object to hindu nationalists taking it as proof of the out of india theory same story thanks my understanding that i'm getting is uh, the uh, because of the das rajna battle uh, it was initially the people's movement right towards the uh, west and the uh, northwest uh, but later from from that region or even before that um, it was like from the steppe to uh, to europe uh, central europe uh, it was cultural movement so is that understanding correct so initially it was people's movement until the uh, steppes and um, um, near region of uh, northwest india and later into the europe it was cultural movement now it is not a question of movement of people or movement of uh, culture it is a question of movement of languages it is a question of movement of people when genetic centers into the this thing now languages can move originally obviously can begin with a, a movement of people Buddhism went from India to China, Japan, etc. It's a movement of people, but you don't find Indian genes in the Chinese and Japanese people because you know by cultural transmission they adopted the religion. 
in uh, indian muslims also you don't find arabic uh, genes they just adopted the religion so in the same way languages were adopted by different people in a long and uh, complicated historical uh, course covering thousands of years and thousands of miles we can't really quantify it and explain every step and every stage but we only know the beginning and the end result my second question is uh, actually it was related to this because uh, last year there was a study uh, a genetic study again um, of 96 genomes um, in like in the area around the switzerland uh, germany and uh, and the france so um, the study says that you know out of this this 96 uh, genomes um, they they find they, they found actually um you know stepies ancestry entering into that region around 2800 bce so if that is the case and if it could could that be related to uh, like the movement of you know uh, this as as a uh, you know um as a as a outcome of the uh, dasrajna battle is is that even related to to dasrajna battle no because see i already said that it was in the pre rigvedic period that the drunas had already moved into central asia and then they started moving in a belt you know uh, in that order italic celtic germanic baltic and slavic they moved into europe uh, across the steppes now uh, as we don't have uh, recorded evidence we can't date every stage of the journey as i said only the end result and the beginning we can know so we know the beginning it started in the pre rigvedic period the druhus who were there during the period uh, rigvedic period were the remnants of the original druhus many of them were already in central asia or already on the way to europe it's a, in a later rigvedic period so um 2800 bc is quite a reasonable uh, well i don't know what it is that uh, archaeologists will have to say but certainly it can be fitted into this moment of the druhus obviously they can't uh, produce uh, recorded data of all this are there any direct descendants of bharat puru in india today or does the and does the name bharat come from the rigvedic bharat puru yeah yeah but over a long process of historical development you know because the bharata puru were the most important people in the rigveda now uh, if you see the puranas they have invented all kinds of stories of this for example vishwamitra's daughter shakuntala and her son is supposed to be bharata or after whom the uh, country is named but obviously it can't be because vishwamitra is just a priest Uh, in the uh, rigveda so his uh, grandson can't be bharata who was the ancestor of the bharata puru tribe so you see as i said the puranas uh, you know make up uh, stories i gave the example of bhritra who turned into a brahmin and by killing him indra gets so you know all kinds of new stories are added onto the original rigvedic core so here also bharata purus are because the bharata purus were a branch of the purus a sub tribe and in book 6 which is the oldest book they refer to the actual ancestral bharata king only once he is referred to as a king in the rigveda in book 6 so he was an far ancestor of divodasa and sinjaya and devavata and all of them sudas so uh, he is the bharata after whom all this is named and the purana doctors know nothing about him but they know that uh, the importance of the bharata purus in the uh, rigveda secondly the mahabharata is the big epic of india and the people of the mahabharata were also a sect of purus they were the kurus so they also called themselves bharata bharata so they also considered bharata to be the ancestor so because mahabharata is the national epic of india somehow that name bharatvarsha or bharata spread uh, became standard for the whole whole country 
so yes it is connected but not in direct linear way linear way in which you can show the derivation i have repeatedly in my books pointed out that all these are ancestral people they were people who existed at the time of the rigveda no one today is a descendant of those people like you say yadus now yadavas are there today at uh, caste but they are obviously have nothing to do with the yadus of the rigveda now i always give an example from my own community rather than giving from other communities now we saraswat as opposed to have come from kashmir uh, haryana punjab area the area of the saraswati we settled down in uh, goa maharashtra and uh, areas further south now this is not just a myth or a tradition it is proved by the konkani language recently i have written a blog about the konkani language because it contains all kind of elements which are native only to that area which are not found in marathi or any other language of india except in konkani like we say udaka for water and swan for sunna for dog which are derived to the rigvedic words which are found in all the other eastern branches of the world but all modern words are derived from pani and kutta so you and then there are many other features but that is language which has been written but if you look at saraswat are they do, will you see us as descendants of kashmiris or haryanwis we look just like other people of maharashtra goa and this thing so you see language is a completely different story from the genetic or race of the people so as i said there are no descendants of the purus even when you say for example the gotras so i my gotra is kaundinya which is a vasishta uh, gotra does that mean i am a descendant of vasishta it is impossible because see of my two parents one was a kaundinya of my four four grandparents one was a kaundinya of my eight great grandparents Uh, one was a count if you go back 50 generations how many of my ancestors were countinous so you see obviously this is just a uh, convention like i retain my name talgeri through a few generations there must be other surnames in india which have survived many generations but if you go by the two parents and four grandparents and all obviously that that heritage is only a small part of the ancestral heritage so similarly there is no one who is a descendant of these ancient people all may be in small part because you know people have migrated from one part of india to the other adopting the local languages and culture and all in such a hotspot and uh, uh, jumble that you cannot extract original uh, people and relate them to uh, the vedic times so uh, another one that i had uh, it, it could be an interesting one because uh, when people talk about the proto indo european they um, everyone is sort of interested to know how what is the accuracy of the proto the reconstructed proto indo european because even in one of your talks with the uh, kushal um, i heard you saying that if we find more branches uh, elsewhere in the yeah. world which are the indo european branches then yeah. the pro- the reconstruction of proto indo european has to be done again just to to make sure that uh, that that branch is also can can also be derived from oh, the reconstructed okay. one so um, and also a lot of scholars um and and i also uh, i think you also made a note in uh, one of your blogs that the inner indo european languages in india do not descend directly from the uh, corpus of um, the vedic text and the rigveda but they were actually descended of possibly different branches which existed yeah. to the east of the purus so yeah. uh, if if we consider that as um, as a fact let let's say that there were some branches which are lost and we and they were sanskritized over time so yeah. then that post, puts a big question on the reconstructed proto indo european because uh, or definitely those um, lost branches were not taken into consideration while reconstructing the proto indo european so is it is the proto indo european even Uh, even uh, accurate as of now 
Okay, see, proto-Indo-European has been artificially reconstructed from all the accepted present descendants. Now, as you said, the inner, inner Indo-European languages of the Ikshwakus, Yadus, Turashus are not recorded anywhere. So, their words are missing in this reconstructed language first. Secondly, even the process of reconstructing languages is very complicated and uh, can be very tricky. For example, now you take all the modern North Indian languages and you reconcile the, uh, you reconstruct the word for a horse. It will be something like Ghoda, Ghotaka. It is a Sanskrit word, Ghotaka, which is found in later Sanskrit. But that is not the Vedic word. The Vedic word is Ashwa. And if the Rigveda and uh, Vedic literature was completely absent and people had reconstructed the original word, we would never have come to the word Ashwa. Similarly, in the Latin or uh, Italic languages, all the words have words uh, like uh, French, Cheval, C-H-E-V-A-L, and Kabal and uh, other such words, derived from a uh, Latin word, Kabalus which did not mean horse. The Latin word for horse was ecus. But suppose the Latin language was not available and they had reconstructed it, then that word ecus would never have been found. So you see, there are very many tricky uh, aspects of trying to reconstruct the language. So we cannot accept it as absolute. Second thing is, the uh, third thing rather is that um, um, we uh, do not know how far this process is wrong because they you know, as I showed, how they refuse to accept the words for elephant, etc. And um, now take the Greek word theos, which means God. Now, all the other languages have words like deos, devas, deva, etc. for God. Now, these people say, according to their rule, you know, the in other languages cannot be the in Greek. So, theos is not, cannot be an Indo-European word. It is borrowed from some other language. Again, how, how, how did it borrow from another language? It's yet such a strikingly similar word with the only difference of the and the. And where is that language? Where is it recorded? So you see their uh, pronouncements are very uh, whimsical and, uh, you know, biased. So you cannot take that thing very seriously. At the same time, as the Proto-Indo-European language is not recorded anywhere, it has to be reconstructed. So as a working model with plenty of, you know, uh, what should we say, reservation, we can accept it as a working model. And... Uh, and we see that it is more than us. It is the linguists themselves who refuse to accept it when they refuse the common word for elephant, etc. So it is people who don't like it who reject words. So let us try to be more practical. We'll accept it, but let's not be too fanatical about it. That Theos is a non-Indo-European word and uh, Ibha is a, is not a non-Indo-European word and all that. We we should have... A, there, there is a word in Sanskrit, Viveka Buddhi, our ability to look at something and use our brains when we are analyzing it. So we have to do that. We can't go by strict rules, dogmatic rules. The question which I wanted to ask you was related to, uh, essentially it is in the context of the talk. Uh, of course, you have done an enormous work, but uh, in the context of Rigved, Dashraj, King, etc. There, there is a genealogy of Devas and Asuras or Devas and Danavas, which is related to uh, the marriage of Sage Kashyap with Diti and Aditi and then uh, there is a there is a uh, imputation let us say that the Danavas moved moved towards uh, Europe um, and uh, there are certain uh, you know linguistic connotations uh, which uh, give Kashmir uh, on um, after the name of Sage Kashyap Caspian Sea is named after Sage Kashyap etc etc so, uh, but uh, I, I, to to best of my knowledge, I don't think Kashyap figures prominently in Rigvedic corpus. 
so what would yeah. you uh, tell us or add to uh, to to this observation kashyapa is a rishi who appears in the later parts of the rigveda so obviously he cannot be the ancestor of the devas and asuras and others and as i always say i cannot really seriously answer question based on puranic uh, stories as i said puranic stories have no relevance to the there are of course people who want to justify all the puranic stories and some of prove that they are right I, i can't help it because people have their obsession but uh, i cannot uh, answer the questions because the puranas contain all kinds of things which have no connection with the rigveda how can kashyapa prajapati be the ancestor of all these uh, different and then people talk about manvantaras and the different manus and all, all that is puranic tradition we uh, there is a difference between uh, religion and history and uh, for example recently in a, someone pointed out to me that someone in a, on a twitter tweet had uh, said that people like me conradels and witzel all of us distort vedic history so he said see see he is putting you in the same category as witzel so i said he is right i conradels bibilal uh, sr rao and romila thapar uh, witzel and uh, max miller and uh, all of them all are in one category because we are in the academic category some of us tell the truth some of the us uh, tell lies that is the difference but we are all in academic category but those who you know bring up all these religious stories from the puranas and expect me to incorporate it into rigvedic history that discussion should not be with me it should be with people you know of the say like the uh, zakir naik type so far as islamic stories are concerned or the billy graham type so far as biblical stories are concerned or all these you know mullahs and christian and uh, muslim evangelists who you know go by the word quran this verse this uh, hymn says this or something in the bible says this so these people also say something in the rigveda says this something in the purana says this i'm sorry uh, we cannot religion and academic studies are two totally different distinct and i am not going to uh, you know go mad trying to explain uh, religious things and fit them into the rigvedic data it is not possible yeah sorry uh, i appreciate uh, you have answered my question beautifully from the point of your rigveda but the name of the places being in that direction which is the axis of possible migration of uh, out of india which would be roughly the axis of uh, uttar past kabul beyond towards caspian sea and finally till uh, uh, till the european mid european portions uh, till uh, the sea that access is definitely the access of uh, first the indo european language and then slavic languages which have all that uh, you know which you wonderfully explained from that point of view my question is unanswered otherwise you have answered wonderfully what i'm saying is that uh, from point of view of kashyap being in the uh, mentioned only in one part of the rigveda which is the later part of the rigveda uh, proves that he could not have been the ancestor from rigvedic angle but his yeah. name being given to a sea and to a very prominent area like kashmir it still has yeah. certain significance in this uh, debate so from that point of view also i would like you to give a comment yeah so that is true because as i said the soma came from areas of kashmir northernmost pakistan and afghanistan so you see who are associated with the soma in my second book i have given detail the two families which are associated with soma are the bhrugus who are supposed to introduce the soma sacrifice and the kashyapas because of the 10 apri suktas of the different families of rishis it is only the kashyapas whose apri sukta is dedicated to soma and not to agni 
so they are uh, very and uh, they dominate the ninth book which is the book of soma so yes it is possible that they have a connection with soma but that has nothing to do with um, uh, uh, this uh, story and yes it may be that they are connected to kashmir and uh, to the soma areas and all that but this has nothing to do with the story of uh, kashyapa prajapati and other such people who are all lay parts of later stories so i don't see how that can be uh, connected here also kashyapa in the rigveda it is a word which is common to the rigvedic language and the avestan language and it means a, a tortoise so you see uh, this rishi had the name of a tortoise yes but that word is common to uh, avesta and uh, rigveda so um, it cannot be a far eastern word which uh, ancestral word and all that because it uh, i mean it doesn't fit into the picture uh, all i'm saying is that uh, in puranic corpus we have the story of uh, vishnu and uh, kashyap avatar also so there is some uh, disconnect which is not fitting in uh, the present thesis presented but uh, obviously as as people of uh, of scientific temperament looking for truth we'll have to uh, have a eye on the uncomfortable truths also so in that sense uh, the name of the places as well as this uh, certain uh, puranic stories some of course uh, like uh, sir has said told that uh, yeah that that they probably cannot be true but some portions have certain connotations is what i would like see the problem with the puranic data is you know if you go by the puranas then you find that the greeks and romans and the cholas pandyas and cheras of the south were all there at the time of the mahabharata as well as of the ramayana because they are mentioned in the mahabharata and the valmiki ramayana so you can't uh, strictly try to find make logic of these references in the puranas or the epics then um, uh, another thing is that um, puranic stories are so out of the way now when i wrote my first book if anyone has read it in 1993 that is the first time i had ever uh, known anything about the rigveda or the puranas before that they were just known to me as our sacred books so there it was when i first studied them now the rigveda i studied was the book by malati shendge in which she tries call, call uh, her book civilized demons the harappan in the rigveda and she claims that most of the vedic gods were actually harappan non aryan natives of india now when i found that all these gods are represented in european mythology how can they be non aryan natives of india so uh, that led me to deeper study of mythology then there was the book by p l bhargav about the puranas he tried to show that all the puranic uh, ancestors were in punjab and then they spread out over the whole of india now in the uh, he has given a table of rishis so according to his table the oldest rishis are kanva and atri and vishwamitra and vasishtha are among the last rishis so when i started my second book the rigveda historical analysis i thought see he has done some analysis there must be some logic so i tried to analyze the rigveda from the, that point of view and i got into such an utter mess that i almost gave up the task of writing the second book then i decided let's not go into the puranas they have no connection with the rigveda let's go only into the rigvedas and then i arrived at the full chronology of the rigveda so you see if you go by the puranas you will only end in a mess and if people you know are determined that no to show that we are true nationalists and true hindus we have to somehow justify the puranic story no no well, uh, i i agree with you sorry uh, all i'm saying is uh, you you are absolutely right purana is uh, the, the data is of less credibility absolutely no doubt about it and uh, the kind of work which you have done in rigvedic chronology is a stellar work probably it is very difficult to dispute it in uh, in that relative chronological sense 
having said that you can always look at puranic data wherever it is corroborating with the, the original uh, imputation derived from rigved and i am moving yeah, yeah, in that exactly. direction so yeah, for example saying, in the puranas there are uh, supposed to be the sons of yayati and all the tribes are descended from them but yayati is a character who appears only in the new books of the rigveda so all these tribes cannot be his descendants they all you know they picked up names from the rigveda and some made up stories about them fabricated stories it's quite interesting as part of our lore but let's not uh, uh, try to impose it onto our historical framework now uh, in this particular uh, respect for example uh, the uh, purus are one of the tribes and uh, um, uh, so they cannot obviously all the tribes including not only the vedic people but the other vedic uh, non vedic tribes of the east and west all of them cannot be descendants of yayati who is uh, mentioned in the late books but yet there is one important point that the puranas bring out that there is a group of five whom they have named as the five sons of yayati and in the rigveda it is confirmed that these are the five tribes of which occupied most of north india except the ishwakus in the east so then you see then that uh, grouping of five acquires sense because it is confirmed by the rigvedic data but not in the sense of who is whose father and who is whose son so the, that chronology of purana can definitely tie you in knots and it is difficult to unravel essentially uh, kashyap kachap like very rightly you said the tortoise connotation and the story of vishnu and avatar of vishnu in form of kashyap which is consequent to the great flood and uh, matsya avatar is definitely having some bearing on uh, on on this framework uh, is what i suspect i read somewhere somebody had written that vishwamitra and vashishta are actually family names so they might not be that same vishwamitra and vashishta that carries on even uh, during rama's time and you know so uh, are these family names kashyap vishwamitra vashishta yes they are family name because see, there are uh, 10 families of uh, rishis in the rigveda they are vishwamitra vashishta angirasas There are three branches: Bharadwajas, Dirgatamasis, and uh, uh, Vamadevas. So, no, not Vamadevas. I mean, Gautamas. Now, then there are Bhrugus. Then there are Kashyapas. There are ten um, uh, families in all, or rather nine priestly families and one family, which is actually the kings from the Bharatapuru dynasty who became rishis and composed them. They were counted as a ten family. So, of the ten apriyuktas, nine belong to the nine priestly families, and one belongs to the Bharatapuru priests. Well, I mean, who have come from the Bharatapur clan? So you see, yes, it is a name which uh, goes on. But uh, how far you can apply it to uh, people now? How will you decide how the Vishwamitras and different stories are connected with each other? You have, for example, Durvasa, the angry Rishi who curses people whenever he gets angry. He is found in every single text in it. Whenever they require a Rishi who is angry and gives curses, Durvasa appears on the scene. So you see, that some of them are like uh, you know standard figures to put in a certain situation. So I will not go too seriously by these traditional stories and uh, this thing. Yeah. So question is very simple. The question is that few people claim that while Aryan invasion and Aryan immigration is genetically not possible, but still a very yeah. primitive form of Sanskrit went from India to Middle East to West. and then a mature form of sanskrit came back and from that primitive form probably the indo aryan languages came out and a mature form and this is one reason why the pre vedic sanskrit and the vedic sanskrit or the sanskrit after that is very different have you uh, read anything about it or do you think it's it's again another conspiracy theory 
so there is all this uh, story about aryan going out and then coming back again there was this uh, bhagwan uh, i think it was bhagwan singh was it who had written the book uh, sword of tipu sultan or something he also wrote a book i think what uh, is bhagwan gidwani so he wrote a book the return of the aryans according to him he accepted that the aryans had come from outside and then he tried to say no but before that they must have gone out from india and then they returned so you see this is not serious study this is just people trying to you know a uh, play around and just make some uh, senseless things out of it now sanskrit vedic sanskrit is completely different from later sanskrit because many of the words we use now i gave an example of the word kal which appears only in the last part of the rigveda now there are so many words which don't appear in the rigveda at all or they appear later now i always give the example of the word ratri ratri which is a common word in all the indian languages for night but in the rigveda it appears only in the very last part of the rigveda and throughout the rigveda the word is nakt and nakt has equivalence in all the other 11 branches like night noctus noshti etc all the other 11 branches have that word and they don't have the word ratri and ratri is found only in the late rigvedic and later this thing so you see there is a great uh, this thing now again what is that word ratri so it is possible that it is a word from the eastern purus or the eastern people as i said there were other era, uh, indo european dialects within india so it may have been a word from the inner indo european dialect but we have no means of saying that certainly it is not a dravidian word or an austric word or any other uh, known language so it is possible it is a word which existed in the inner indo european language so uh, there are uh, but it is not about someone going out and coming back in and uh, bringing this and all that they are all inside india different parts and only the anus and druyus went out from india actually the purus also a section went out the mitanni and much later in time from indo aryan or the romani or gypsies who left just 1000 years ago so yes there have been migration but i don't think any of them came back and brought new forms in the which dominated india the first question yeah. is why did the dasrajana battle happen was it purely political fighting or was there some deep philosophical adversary relationship also going on no it was purely political because sudas first he went westward for in quest of soma then he must have you know as they say got the taste of uh, other areas so he started because it specifically mentions that he held that yajna after which a horse was left loose north east and west and so that he could go and conquer in all the directions and acquire riches so you see there is no philosophy involved anywhere here and so people who try to discover philosophical reasons in this are totally out of the way as i said neither were the sudas and his followers good people as compared to the others being bad people and at the same time they were the aggressors the anus were not the aggressors they were fighting in their own area the punjab area it is sudas who went with his army across to them and tried to conquer their area so you see there is no philosophy it is politics and human nature being what it is you will find it in every stage of human society and civilization so it is nothing uh, to be wondered at okay the second question shrikant ji is uh, despite this adversarial relationship uh, why do iranians still connect themselves with the word aryan you know i mean i've heard that even iran itself comes from arya aryan right and they still yeah. have the aryan bandar and all of that so why do they still have this relationship with with this word See, the word Arya has been given many meanings, trying to show that it comes from the word wandering, it comes from the meaning agriculture, etc. But basically, we are not concerned about the root from which it came. What is it used as in the Rigveda? And I have shown that in the Rigveda, yes, the word Arya is used for the Purus. 
that is the rigveda is a puru book and the rigvedic uh, people call themselves arya and others are called dasa whoever they may be mainly because their opponents were the iranians the word is more of, and because the word also is found in the iranians so the uh, dasa word refers to iranians but it refers basically to all non purus so we you have puru and aryan enemies there are references to arya and dasa enemies which means puru and non puru enemies i have shown this in great detail there are many references and they fall in a very clear sense so what uh, what it means is that arya does not mean any particular thing it simply means our community versus other communities our tribal conglomerate versus other tribal conglomerate so this word was common the iranians also called themselves arya so the purus did not call the anus arya they called them dasa and the anus called themselves arya and they called the purus turya so you see each each of the the irish people the word ir i don't know some people dispute that it is connected to the word aryan but whatever if it is then again they are calling themselves arya in a way so you see what is and i always again give a community example of my own now there are many types of saraswats in uh, speaking konkani now originally there are chitrapur saraswats and gaur saraswats so are you know supposed to be shiv and vaishnav now formally you know we uh, these communities didn't marry among each other and uh, we used the word amkigalos which means belonging to our community so when a chitrapur saraswat uses that word he means chitrapur saraswat and when he says not amkigalo he means gaur saraswat and when the gaur saraswat uses the word amkigalo he means gaur saraswat and for others he has other names so you see this word does not mean in itself chitrapur saraswat or gaur saraswat it simply means our community so the same way the word arya does not mean purus it does not mean iranians it means our community so in the rigveda it is used for purus because the rigvedic people were purus in the avesta it is used for the iranians because the iranian people were uh, uh, i mean they uh, they were also using that word for the iranians okay great so that's wonderful last question shrikant ji uh, and i know this might throw you off and i'm not trying to establish any you know irrelevant connections but just trying to ask uh is there any connection to rama or any of his ancestors significant connection in the rigveda no see uh, i have given in my article blog article ikshvakus in the rigveda that uh, the ikshvakus were an eastern people who lived in eastern up and uh, bihar now they do not enter into the rigveda because they were not part of the rigvedic culture they were indo european speaking a different language to the east and their culture were not the ritual culture of the anus druhus and purus it was a culture more philosophical culture and when the vedic culture spread to the area then their philosophy entered into the vedic stream in the upanishads etc so ikshvaku culture was different and but they existed at the same time as the purus but they are not mentioned in the rigveda now andamanese people existed for 60000 years but what is the oldest book which refers to them it must be just 200 300 years ago when the europeans came here they went to the andaman and found them out the american civilization existed since long before but they first enter world records when the europeans went there and wrote about them so you see people exist long before they are referred to they shows existed long before they appeared in a indian records but they did not appear in a indian records earlier because the earliest indian records were the records of the purus to the west you know i'm fascinated by the origin of the semitic people uh, not because yeah. of any connection they might have with us 
but because their exports have had major implications for the whole world right and you know what i mean the religions that have come out of them so can you either answer now about their origin or some book that you would recommend to know more about their origins the semitic people no see they are completely unconnected uh, this thing but now many people have tried to you know the linguistic arguments which i said are fraudulent ones now they have claimed that the uh, there are in, uh, uh, words common to proto indo european and proto semitic which shows that proto indo european and proto semitic lived in the same area and had common words for certain things now two the two really prominent words are the word for bull taurus krishnatha of course there is a vedic word bekanatha meaning money lender yeah it is a mesopotamian word to, to the mesopotamian traders yeah no that i would it when in the relation that i shown that the new rigvedic culture was the culture of the mature harappan who had trade with mesopotamia so that is a distinct issue uh, it was great then they are not originally you know from one place or something like that and uh, they are definitely mesopotamian words they are not vedic words which are related to mesopotamian words they are words which are borrowed from the mesopotamian traders so what they are claiming is that the words for wine and the words for bull taurus are common words they are found in the indo european languages as well as in the semitic languages which shows that they, these two were influenced each other and then they claim also that these were the originally semitic words now surprisingly when they give all these fraudulent arguments they don't really examine the issue now uh, what they are claiming is that you know these two words are found in indo european languages and they are semitic words absolutely correct but are they found in all the indo european branches you see both these words are found only in the nine branches which are to the west of the semitic area that is the languages of europe hittite and all that they are not found in the three branches which are to the east that is indo aryan iranian and tokharian these two words are not found in these three branches they are found in all the other branches so what does it show it shows that the proto indo europeans originated in the east and nine of those branches migrated westwards passing the semitic areas and borrowed those two semitic area words from the semitic people so it is not a proto indo european word it is a word common to those nine branches which moved from india to europe and west asia and passed the semitic people so you see this is when you really examine the linguistic arguments you come to the truth so actually there is uh, i cannot see what you know there are people who talk about nostratic and all i have not gone into that so i cannot answer what are all the different language families how they may be ultimately related and all that is too esoteric a topic for me so uh, i don't know how i don't think there are direct relations between proto semitic and proto indo european because most of these things are things which i have written in a books and blogs see there are uh, there is for example the blog article you know when i was in college uh, i used to st- i had a habit a hobby of learning all the different alphabets of the world so i knew most of the alphabets except of course chinese and javanese and uh, things like that and um, i also had a hobby of learning numbers 1 to 100 in different languages including red indian languages african languages australian aboriginal languages and uh, all of them now uh, i had written them all in a book that book had become yellow and started uh, i wanted to throw it away but i thought all that work i took during my college days i shouldn't just throw it away i'll write an article on it and i started an article india's unique place in the world of numbers and numerals and while i was doing it unbelievably i found a super proof linguistic proof that the aryans or indo european languages originated in india because all the number systems of the world fall in certain categories 
there are uh, decimal languages and vdecimal uh, languages and in decimal languages there are four stages the first stage is represented by languages like chinese etc in india we have santali second stage is represented by languages like turkish and all that and uh, you find it in india also in for example uh, sinhali uh, no not in sinhali sorry uh, yeah you find it in what is known as spoken sinhali today obviously it is a very ancient language which has remained alive and no one has realized it spoken sinhali is contains words like watura for water which is related to english water and hittite water but people have decided that sinhali came from sanskrit so no one really analyzes sinhali's words separately so that is where the mistake comes as i said there were other indo european languages which have to be examined now uh, the sinhali language has this system like turkish and uh, others the spoken sinhali and then you get the third stage which is found in all the dravidian languages of the world and all the other 11 branches of indo european languages except indo aryan and then you find the fourth stage which is found in modern indo aryan languages which is the most complicated and difficult stage of all so i have given that in detail in my article so then where were these four stages where did they develop obviously in india because you find the second third and fourth stage in india sanskrit and tokharian which was one of the first to leave that also falls in the second stage along with spoken sinhali and then all the other 11 branches except tokharian fall uh, i so i should say 10 branches actually all fall in the third category and in sinhali the uh, written sinhali language also falls in the third category and all the dravidian languages fall in the third category which shows that when the third category of words was forming in north india sinhali is left that area all the the indo european branches left india and the dravidian languages were also influenced by that or maybe they had a, it was a common development but when the north indian languages developed into the fourth stage all these other people had departed so we have the second third and fourth stage in india which proves that and again why why do all the other eleven branches outside india have the same stage as the dravidian languages so that shows that they were all in india at the time of the third stage so here when you examine different subjects you come across new and unexpected proof so that is one subject which uh, for example is a separate article by itself like the one on the elephant so uh, i mean these are side topics which give strong weight to the out of india theory you know uh, when you mentioned that sudas went out in the in search of uh, soma uh, yeah. to get it from afghanistan Uh, so now, yeah. whenever I have read about soma, it says it's one of the fundamental offerings uh, in Vedic practices and the yagyas. Uh, so, when he goes out in the search of soma, is it purely political, or is it does it have a, a spiritual and uh, some other angle to it? Uh, you know, uh, pa- parallel with uh, the Europeans coming to India for spices, they knew about spices since the Roman times because the Romans used to import spices and they drained their gold reserves in trying to buy Indian spices. so it was a very valued thing known to the european since ancient times but it was just 500 600 years that when the arabs closed the routes to india that they set out to find a path to india in quest of the spices so it was not a new thing they knew about it and uh, similarly the gurus uh, knew about soma because it was an import from the northwest but they did not it was a rare uh, uh, rare material and they had to pass through the anu it had to come through the anu territories so suda set out in search of the uh soma now you say soma i don't i don't know how spiritual exactly the soma ritual is because um, well i won't uh, comment on that but the thing is that the soma ritual had died out 
it is a purely rigvedic ritual which started somewhere uh, after you know soma became common now in in the rigveda the soma is known from ancient times but it uh, when it tells you about the places where soma is found these places are mentioned only in the new books and all these places are in the northwest and afghanistan so you see even the rigveda was not in any uh, suspense about where soma is from and uh, after some time when they moved into uttar pradesh and eastward and they lost that soma cult became redundant so most people after didn't even know what soma was mostly it is claimed to be a species of ephedra but uh, uh, it's not necessary to go deeply into that point whether they were not telling or what i don't know he must have decided to go and get it directly at any rate in the new books there are references to people of gandhara known as gandharvas they uh, and they prevent people from taking the soma from that so it is possible that some people in the northwest must not have been allowing it but the sudas him does not say so directly it only says that he went uh, westward in quest of soma what books to read now of course ah. for contemporary writers like shikant you can have google and go to his blog site and so on you'll find out there is one book that deserves mention here that you will not find so easily uh it has the same realistic and commonsensical approach that shikant has it is about the rigveda not about indo european but about the chronology of the rigveda and it is it ends up concluding entirely in the same sense as shikant has it is this book by umapada sen from the 1970s uh it's about the astronomy in the rigveda so it's a different part of the rigvedic evidence and uh, so he concludes you see to an era of about 3500 to 2000 bc which is far uh more modest than all the uh well what shall i say high flown uh hindu alternatives about mahabharata in 5500 bc and so on no so it's much much more modest much more realistic at the same time however it is a clear refutation of the aryan invasion theory you see if the rigveda was being written in 3000 bc obviously the rigvedic uh, writers cannot have entered india in 1500 bc the rigvedic era by umapada sen uh, so in in basic your hypothesis uh, you say that uh, yayati and uh, all of his descendants are a part of the lunar dynasty and you have the ikshvakus who are uh, in the interior uh, based around the ayodhya area who are part of the ikshvakus the solar dynasty um, my question is uh, there is Uh, in the jain tradition you have uh, a lot of the tirthankaras who are a part of the ikshvaku dynasty uh, so is there any study which has been done or if you have done any study which is to like you have done with um, the avesta uh, on the part of comparing the jain chronology and whatever is available through the jain texts or the jain tradition and comparing that with the vedic uh, tradition Yeah, that is what I have said. That Bihar was a place where all kinds of philosophies evolved. Whether it was Upanishadic philosophies in the courts of Janaka, or it was Buddhism, or Jainism, or agnostic and uh, atheistic uh, uh, beliefs, and all kinds of philosophical systems originated there. The Rigveda basically is not philosophical, though there are some very 
interesting hymns by dirgata mas for example and conrad has written much about them but uh, on the whole it has uh, it is not a philosophical text it is a very karmakand sort of text and uh, very you know the priests are uh, praise the kings for giving them gifts like you know courts uh, courtiers praise the king for giving them gifts and all. so it's spiritualism is in my mind very much a, a small part and it is there in certain parts but there are for example there is a hymn the gambler's lament which teaches a, which tries to tell us don't gamble and it is in the form of a gambler who reveals how he is being destroyed by gambling so you see there are all kinds of themes in the rigveda some of them are moral social most of them are you know uh, just hymns in praise of god or descriptions of rituals so they, everything is there in the rigveda but philosophy is hardly there yes the, sorry in the 10th book there are the uh, nasadiya sukta and others which are very highly philosophical hymns let me add that maybe they, by that time they had been influenced by the east also i don't know and uh, ikshvakus I, i think uh, earlier someone asked about ayodhya i forgot to mention that in the ramayana the list of kings of ayodhya now it has certain very important names missing like prasadasyu purukutsa etc and in the puranas they are mentioned as ikshvaku king and in the rigveda they are found as trikshi kings to the northwest so you see what this means is at the time of mandhata who was a king of ayodhya he went to help the purus in the northwest and then after he came back one genre one uh, set of another new dynasty starting from him settled down in the northwest and that is the those are the kings like purukutsu and prasadasyu who are the ikshvaku kings mentioned in the rigveda so you we have now evidence that there must have been a ikshvaku kingdom to the east because mandata appears from the east into the rigvedic area and leaves behind a, a new generation and goes back so you see that is how the ikshvakus have their place in the rigveda but the ikshvaku culture itself was not uh, following the vedic thing whatever you may find in the valmiki ramayana which is written much later see the trouble with all these things as i said is that uh, vedic literature goes back uh, as i said the earliest things go back to 3000 bc and vedic literature was there by till 1000 bc or other vedic texts you know before the buddhist period so whatever even the puranas were written and the epics were written in mauryan time so all these later texts the jain and buddhist texts come uh, many of them were composed before the puranas were actually written down so still they don't go back into vedic times so there uh, i don't know how you can connect them except that it shows that those cultures were already there in the east at the same time as the vedic culture was flourished in the west but uh, uh, how you can connect them like some people try to connect the word rishabha it may just be a common word like for example in the rigveda there is a reference to a king called sushravas who fights a battle against 20 kings but that is just one reference in a verse we can't uh, they construct history from it but in the avesta you find a king called hausrava which is the same thing as uh, sushravas and uh, he, his name in modern parsi is khushru but that has no connection with the sushravas um, of the rigveda in the first book at the same time buddha the buddha of the east has no connection with buddha atreya arishi in the rigveda and baudra arishi in the avesta a composer in the avesta so you see the same name could flourish in different areas so it's not necessary that uh, rishabha means that he was part of the rigvedic culture he was part of the eastern uh, uh, spiritual culture is there any particular publication you can ask you can uh, recommend for us to refer to to read the rigvedas in hindi and sanskrit well i have read many translations of rigveda and 
many of them you know contain only when you read all you come across the correct translation because for example the reference to kavi jayaman wilson has correctly transfer, uh, translated it whereas the other other all the other scholars translated in different ways so you don't even know that there is a person called kavi jayaman who is being referred to in that him so you see uh, i cannot recommend any one particular translation you should go through all the translations at the same time much of the rigveda is ritualistic you know prayers to indra and uh, description of the soma ritual and all what you will get by going through them is a bit uh, difficult to say so it is depends upon how you research it so my method has been you know take some keywords find out where they are located in the rigveda and then you arrive at the historical conclusion from it so that has been the main uh, way in which i have arrived at my history why are the archaeologically identified cities of rakhigarhi lothal dholavira birana not found in our vedas or purans it's always intrigue me while we find all the names of river cities but these uh, archaeological sites have not been mentioned could you please throw light on them yeah because you see the purana as i said were written in modern time whereas these are very much older older cities so uh, for example we know that the veda vedas are uh, the geography shows that it the rigveda was composing the entire area over which the indus valley or harappan civilization was spread but now how will you find exact uh, correspondence between the archaeology and the vedic text it is very difficult because uh, they had not set out to provide us with such examples they were doing their own work so it depends on how far we are able to find such for example i have given that uh, two words mesopotamian words um uh, bekanata and uh, mana now they are accepted by scholars as uh, mesopotamian or babylonian words pertaining to trade this shows that the vedic people in that period book 8 which is a new book at that period they were in contact with the and they traded with the babylonians of mesopotamia so um, what does it mean how could the rigveda people in haryana have traded with them so it was actually uh, it was from the harappan cities that this trade took place so there we have we find any indirect clues i cannot if we do not find exact you know that this word and uh, this word is uh, corresponding to this and all that you you do find for example kundas which uh, are have been identified as yagna kundas so it depends on how far you can identify them yahweh uh, the judaic god uh, is it is it somewhere you know similar to shiva because they can't pronounce sir, so they pronounce it as her so yahweh and because you said that there was an emigration out from here uh, so that is one question i have secondly because in the vedas there is a proto proto shiva uh you know uh, vedic god which was rudra and it is all about destruction and all about uh, you know uh, destroying whenever there is uh, too much of you know wrong doings so can that uh, be taken as yahweh shiva in the in the judaic god actually see this rudra has many epithets one of them is shiva which means shubha that is uh, auspicious so uh, and uh, but uh, if you see there are two references in the rigveda to contentious references to shishna deva now whether that means people who are addicted to sex or does it mean people who are worshippers of the linga that is a, a much debated issue but if it is the latter it means that the rigvedic people did not worship the linga and we know that they didn't so but we know that from archaeological discoveries in interior of india that the linga was worshiped all over india in the interior so it was a part of the interior religions of india not a part of the rigvedic so you see shiva uh, afterwards when the vedic religion spread all over india 
all the local deities were incorporated into the not vedic puranas because in, in the puranas already the vedic gods had been transformed and adapted and afterwards when it spread all over india the main two gods of the purana shiva and vishnu all the local deities were attributed as avatars of shiva or vishnu so we have vithala who is a uh, who is a avatar of vishnu and we have say for example um, um um martha malhari martan um, uh, who is supposed to be a uh, incarnation of shiva so all the goddesses were made incarnations of the uh, big de- great devi and all the other uh, male deities were made into reincarnations of vishnu or shiva and they were all incorporated into one whole so you see what exactly was there first and uh, not it's not necessary that it should correspond yeah this is regarding uh, 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 any kind of evidence of contact with uh, vedic indians or indo european speakers to be accurate in the assyrian text because what we find is that assyrians had lot of conflict with the hittites who are to the west but do they have but do the assyrian records have any uh, information about contact with people from the east speaking indo european no not until the mitanni people went and formed the kingdom that and it is the mitanni people who you know have indo uh, indo aryan words vedic words actually and the vedic names so that is when and that is you know when the uh, they uh, mitanni people went in i have shown that the mitanni people must have gone in the period of the new rigvedic books which is somewhere after 2500 bc and that is the exact time when peacocks elephants and uh, the indian uh, buffalo uh, I, i mean the indian uh, zebu cattle are found in west asia so it is obvious that uh, these were taken by the mitanni people there so uh, that is when the, uh, the assyrians came into contact with the pe- uh, people who originated in india not maybe directly with india and uh, we have in my, uh, these two babylonian words in the rigveda which shows that the trade contact between babylonia and the indus civilization actually represented uh, trade contact between the new rigvedic people and the babylonians but a, a, a contact which was not very prominent it just incidentally appears in these two words both of which are connected with trade vekanata means the money lender and mana is a measure of a unit of measure so both of these would be required for traders so are you planning to do any like complete comprehensive analysis of the sinhali language because as you mentioned they have some archaic words like batura for the water which is found in the western branches and hitite so which is very interesting so and i would love to um, sort of find out what more of the vocabulary that they contain which does not come from the indo aryan uh, are you planning to do any comprehensive analysis in the near future see for that see uh, i think i'm a bit too old to start learning a new language especially a uh, very unknown one like sinhali like i had decided when i retired two years ago that now i'm going to say, learn three languages one is kannada because people from uh, konkani speakers half know kannada also because i worked in central bank i half know gujarati and because we know hindi we half know urdu so i decided i would study urdu gujarati and kannada in detail but somehow that mood has never come although two years have passed so i don't see how i can study the sinhali language and not only study it but arrive at all these uh, very uh, you know deep uh, researches and analysis i don't think i can do that but some sinhali scholars should certainly do it because the culture of the anuspurus and rivas was not philosophical as i said it was the culture of the ikshvakus to the east so the movement of philosophy was from east to west but within india those who went outside india before that they did not take the philosophies with them though i believe kondadas uh, has found certain uh, elements in greek and uh, hindu mythology but not 
precisely philosophy um even like even in that framework you know you know you know the the last paper which has been really popular called the narasimhan uh, paper from the david reich and also a few geneticists from india and what i find uh confusing and surprising is a lot of people actually don't even go read the paper themselves because uh, recently a uh, few months ago i started reading the paper and they have not the actual published paper but they also published a supplementary report with it and that report is actually very interesting especially the section on the south asians because um they make there, there are three points very very clear that they make based on their dna comparison so and 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 i know talagariji also did some detailed analysis in his recent book addressed to tony joseph about the dna stuff as well so in in as we know that in the swat valley they found like i think near about 100 ancient dna from 1200 bc to 800 bc so and in this entire sort of call like a circus of aryan invasion so all the people who believe on it um so that should be the time where the aryans are supposed to be mixing heavily within with the indians but and 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 look at this so there are about 100 ancient dnas and they make a clear cut observation in the supplementary report and they don't say much about it in the original report but what they say is that the central um uh, that the step cline is not included in the modern indian cline and the step cline and the swat valley ancient dna they are completely off cline so there we have our clear answer so uh, so the one must ask how how did they end up actually making a conclusion that the aryan somehow entered india so and and in the very same paragraph what they say is that so they sort of invented a population which does not exist and did not exist in india which did not exist in the step they have got no ancient dna sample but because they had they were working with the step hypothesis so they say that we hypothesize a ghost population that once existed on the steps and also existed within south asia and they too mixed with each other uh, so that ghost population came in uh to south asia and started mixing with everyone and which is not found in the ancient dna so so th- this is this is something i think um, everyone uh, should just go and read that section and it so this is the entire basis of the aryan invasion even in the genetics now so there is no archaeological record there is no textual record and the genetics is inventing a ghost population so i guess that explains a lot Dr L says Yahweh means he who is according to the bible but this is a folk etymology it comes from arabic uh h y w yahweh to move in the sky to storm a bedouin storm god so not very unlike rudra of the vedic deities well i mean you said it very well um this uh you see Yahweh appears to Moses in the burning bush when he is staying as a refugee with a Bedouin tribe the Midianites who are Arabic and so unlike in Egypt where he comes from where the sun is always shining you know there in the desert they have storms and so they have a storm god and um so you see apparently he got familiar with this and he was busy with this mentally and so when he saw this strange natural phenomenon of the burning bush which is because of an ethereal oil that catches fire under the sun rays uh you know he 
you know, this became real for him. And so that's where Yahweh, it's basically an, an Arabic uh, storm deity. The word Yahweh, but not in that meaning, but in the basic meaning of the storm to move in the sky is also found in the Quran. But so it's not found in Hebrew. And so that's why the Hebrews were, you know, tempted to make a folk etymology on the spot. But um, so I, I stand by the, uh, the natural uh, Arabic uh, explanation. See, the fact at any rate is that uh, the word is not related to any Sanskrit word. Like some people claim that it's related to Yahweh or something, um, you know, that's coincidental. You know, there may be sound resemblances, but the, the, the Hebrew Arabic word is not related to Sanskrit. However, the concept is more or less related. I mean, most ancient peoples, you see, faced with the phenomenon of storms, had a storm god. And so whether he's called Rudra or Indra or uh, Yahweh or whatever, you know, the concept is more or less the same. You know, similar with the, the black stone in the Kaaba, some people say, oh, it was a Shiva temple. <coughs> no, it was not. But nevertheless, it has a great resemblance to the Shiva cult in India which is why Arab traders went to worship at the Somnath temple on the coast, because they thought that essentially it was the same <clears throat> God as the one worshipped in the Kaaba. Like, for example, the Linga worship is found all over the world. And in fact, in pre-Islamic Arabia, the Kaaba itself was a kind of a Linga worship stone. So you see, uh, these are things which are found in pre-Abrahamic uh, times in many parts of the world and it is not necessary that it went from india to there or came from there to here these are common human religious uh, uh, tendencies 